That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge-watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog, because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. I had kind of a big weekend. Had the kids. Uh, I talked last week about Anna being off touring the world uh, with her dad uh, overseas in Taiwan. And, uh, you know, I had the kids all weekend. I'll catch you up on what I did. But, man, some big news and some big developments to talk about. We're going to be all over the map today, but I think we got a great show for you. Uh, Kevin Warren. Kevin Warren, who left the Big Ten and scrambled off to the NFL with his image and his reputation intact. Uh, going to uh, become the CEO and president of the Chicago Bears back in March. Took a victory lap after uh, getting the Big Ten what was believed to be the biggest deal in college football and college athletics history. Apparently there's uh, some problems with that deal. Remember when he cut the deal last August? Seven years, $7 billion, uh, USC and UCLA part of it. Bouncing off to the Big Ten, uh, expected to get about 70 to $72 million a year in media rights distributions. By comparison, uh, the Big 12 Conference got $31.6 million for its members. Pac-12 trying to uh, negotiate a deal somewhere in the 30s, $30 million a year uh, per university, per school. But seven years, $7 billion. NBC was involved. CBS was involved. Fox was involved. That's what we were told. But like some other things that appear too good to be true, this deal apparently is a little bit too good to be true. ESPN had a report, uh, Pete Thamel, terrific reporter at ESPN over the weekend. Uh, He reported that the deal is still yet to be finalized. Uh, Everybody all up in arms over the Pac-12 taking their time with their media rights deal. Apparently, um, you know, the Big Ten Conference doesn't have a deal yet. Uh, it's not finalized. Uh, I, I still think it'll end up in a decent position and far better off than they were prior to the deal. But Kevin Warren's departure now starting maybe to make a little bit of sense. Uh, the Big Ten does not have completed contracts that uh, include all of the fine print. Uh, the new Big Ten Conference Commissioner, Tony Petiti, who has a uh, rich history in television, is uh, apparently involved in what uh, Pete Thamel described as significant horse trading, trying to get the NBC deal finished and then kind of figure out what other issues here are are looming. And any time when somebody comes in and takes over an enterprise, George Klyovkov from Larry Scott, uh, Petiti from Kevin Warren, uh, you know, somebody buys the neighborhood restaurant down the street. Mate, you know, they're they're supposed to disclose all of the issues, all of the problems. The Pac-12 certainly had their issue as they found out that there was an overpayment to Comcast of about fifty million dollars over the last ten years that Comcast wants back. 
Uh, so Klyovkov having to deal with that. But the, the Big Ten Conference commissioner this weekend uh, apparently doing some horse trading because it appears that Kevin Warren, in an in a attempt to get the deal done, gave the green light for NBC to air some primetime games, especially in uh, October and November, despite the fact that his Big Ten programs didn't want to do that. Like, they have not historically been forced to play games at night during the last month of the season. Now, keep that in mind when you think about the Pac-12 conference and the absence that the conference has had when it comes to the college football playoff. The Big Ten has gone way out of their way over the last decade, basically to tell Michigan and Ohio State, hey, you're not going to have to play a night game. You're certainly not going to have to go on the road at night. Uh, You know, we're going to keep it kind of, uh, you know, we're going to keep the ball in the fairway so to speak, for your football program. Uh, Michigan's athletic director, Ward Manuel, oh, and we'll get to Michigan on today's show, provided a quote in the ESPN article. Uh, He said, quote, NBC was surprised, and I was surprised. We had not discussed, and I had not discussed with anyone in the league, uh, changes to the tolerances we had agreed upon years ago. That's his quote. Now, there's a trail of unhappy athletic directors. Like, obviously, the ADs in the Big Ten Conference are not going to be happy. Why? Not just because they have to play some night games, uh, potentially, with NBC in the uh, last month of the season, but because they are seeing money disappear from their bottom line. And the coaches are upset. The TV executives are frustrated. There's been a lack of transparency here. This is a mess that Kevin Warren left behind. Now, again, I still think the Big Ten's going to end up in a good spot, but they were in a record-breaking spot, looking like they were smarter and better than everybody else. Uh, the SEC was looking over, rubbernecking, going, hey, how did, how did they out, outdo us on those deals? Well, I can tell you this, dirty little secret. Kevin Warren was obviously interested in resurrecting his image and his his reputation coming out of the pandemic. The Big Ten was not happy with him as the commissioner. He hired a firm, uh, Arizona-based crisis management firm, uh, led by Kerry Gerlach, who is the uh, spouse of Chuck Cecil, the uh, Arizona assistant coach and former NFL player. And she does a really good job with crisis management, you know, getting her clients on the cover of, you know, Sports Illustrated. Uh, You know, she put Kevin Warren on HBO Real Sports with uh, Bryant Gumbel, and there was that big sort of how the Big Ten won the won the you know college football arms race, and and certainly when he went off to the Chicago Bears, it was uh, viewed in college athletics as Kevin Warren like you know basically taking a victory lap, getting the deal done. My work here is done. Off to the NFL, where he'll now you know sort of lead the Chicago Bears. There was also some speculation that his contract was not renewed by his presidents inside uh, inside the Big Ten Conference, that they were not happy that he was talking about further expansion, we're not done yet, uh, the looming potential to add you know, Stanford and Washington and Oregon. And by the way, Oregon fans, help me understand what it is, and Washington fans too, help me understand what it is about being included in the Big Ten Conference that appeals to you. It just hasn't made sense to me from day one, unless, unless, unless there's some kind of we just don't want to be left out while the rest of college football moves on going, uh, you know, going in that in that equation. 
um, you're you're not going to get a full distribution in the Big Ten. You're going to get a less than distribution. You're going to have to compete head to head with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State. I've talked all about it. Uh, that conference, in most years, will get at least two teams into the college football playoff, the expanded playoff, and presumably would get three teams in. I think the SEC of the Big Ten, we're going to pencil in three teams each. That's six berths going uh, half the tournament will go to the Big Ten Conference and the SEC. In the Pac-12, I think you're going to see two teams in most years, and that's it. And so if you are Oregon or Washington and you are wanting to go compete in the Big Ten Conference, after Ohio State takes a berth, after Michigan takes a berth, um, at USC is in, in play there, and Penn State, and Wisconsin, and don't overlook Purdue or Iowa. And suddenly I'm going, do, do Oregon fans and Washington fans really think this through when they're talking about, hey, we want to be in the Big Ten Conference? Hey, we No, the only way you're getting into the Big Ten Conference is, uh, you know, someday – if um, you know the Big Ten needs a travel partner or needs to ease the travel burden on the L.A. market teams. And why would you help the Big Ten Conference do that while getting your teeth kicked in? It just makes no sense to me. But now this deal is starting to unravel. And it's just another reminder. Like, we have seen things in sports over time that appear too good to be true. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire... Lance Armstrong, the Houston Astros. We have seen things that are too good to be true. Barry Bonds hitting a million home runs, and ultimately there comes a bill at the end. I'm looking at the Big Ten Conference's billion-dollar deal, and I'm thinking to myself, Kevin Warren did not share with Michigan and Ohio State his key constituents that, hey, in order to get to a billion with a B, we're going to have to play some night games on NBC late in the year. You're going to have to go to USC and UCLA late in the year and play a 7.30 p.m. Eastern time kickoff. And, uh, you know, you'll be playing, uh, traveling and playing a night game, essentially, um, or playing at home even at 7.30. He didn't go to them and tell them that because he knew that they would push back against it. And I think, and I suspect Kevin Warren really all along was in this as many conference commissioners, really from Larry Scott to e, you know Brett Yormark to Kevin Warren, even George Klyovkov to some extent. Not like the old college-based uh, commissioners that came from the college world that worked in the intramural department and then athletic director and then became a deputy commissioner in the conference office and then ascended to become the conference commissioner, Greg Sankey, Jim Phillips. Um, you know, there are so many great examples. Uh, Bob Bowlesby, there are great examples of these conference commissioners who understood college athletics and maybe weren't just all about the money. But Kevin Warren, it appears, was all about the money and the story and saying, being able to say we got a billion-dollar deal when he didn't have a billion-dollar deal. It's a reminder, too, as people uh, you know, have spent weeks and weeks and months and months just banging on the Pac-12 conference. And you know, look, I'll be the first to say that the Pac-12 got some things wrong. It, I don't think that the Pac-12 should have allowed UC, USC and U, UCLA to get away. Like They should have been more tuned into that. They should have at least been having conversations about unequal revenue sharing in the future media rights deal. They should have uh, been on high alert. Uh, I, I start that with Larry Scott, who 12 years ago sat in a meeting and advocated along with some ADs for equal revenue sharing. 
the LA TV market was more valuable. The uh, the uh, ADs, of course, at Oregon State and Washington State were doing cartwheels when they came out of that meeting, and they said, we're going to get the same amount of money that USC and UCLA are getting. Um, you know, there was a problem there. Pac-12 also, I think, botched the entire public relations part of this media deal in the wake of UCLA and USC. I think they've been wildly inconsistent and and allowed some presidents to speak and then some ADs to speak and then no, nothing coming from the conference office. I just think it's been a misfire. And I, I don't know if that's Klyovkov or I don't know if it's his presidents who are dictating that, but the entire media strategy to me uh, is is wonky. But that said, the Pac-12 conference is meandering along, trying closing in on a deal, we're told, you know, probably in June, and we come to find out that the Big Ten's deal the billion-dollar deal with ESPN and NBC and Fox and all the, you know, everybody was involved. ESPN no longer part of it, but CBS, NBC, and Fox, there was deal supposed to start on July 1st, 2023. Like, here we are just a couple of few months away from this, and it is still yet to be finalized. Meanwhile, we're looking at, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, Kevin Warren and going, hey, wait a minute, some of the shine is coming off. Here's Kevin Warren talking about, you know, uh, his uh, his expansion plan when he was commissioner last summer. And regarding expansion, I get asked every single day, what's next? It may include future expansion, but it will be done for the right reasons, at the right time, with our student-athletes, academic and athletic empowerment at the center of any and all decisions that we will make regarding any further expansions. We will not expand just to expand. It will be strategic. It will add additional value to our conference, and it will provide a platform to even have our student-athletes be put on a larger platform so they can build their careers, but also that they have an opportunity to grow and learn from an education and from an athletic standpoint. I keep thinking about the education we're all getting, right? We're watching television drive everything in college athletics, and it feels wildly unhealthy to me. Um, I I, uh, wrote over the weekend in my Saturday mailbag, which has, you know, oddly become one of my favorite installments. Like every week I get to answer these questions, but I wrote that, you know, somebody was asking me about, uh, you know, the expansion and all this stuff. And I said, you know, what bothers me the most about all of it is the fact that it ultimately is not about the games. It's not about the players. It's not about um, anything more than just revenue. And Kevin Warren, you know, I think, you know, we know from his history with George Klyovkov, um, could not be trusted on a handshake deal. Like, you know, he, he did a handshake deal, that alliance with the big, you know, the Big 12 and the AC, excuse me, the ACC and the Big 10 and the Pac-12, uh, you know, that three-pronged alliance. And, you know, he shanked Klyovkov and the ACC in the back the first chance he got. Like, that's part of what bothers me when it comes to the ecosystem of college athletics. It's completely sold out to television. Kevin Warren sold out, okay? They've all sold out. Lousy kickoff times, TV distribution issues. You know, you combine that with rising season ticket prices at the stadium and all this realignment nonsense and the relentless pursuit of revenue and wanted so badly to have a billion, a B on the front of that deal so that he could take a victory lap. 
that guess what's happened? You know, everybody has de-emphasized the consumer experience in the stadium. You know, there was already problems in college athletics before all these bozos came in that had no love for college athletics. I think Kevin Warren uh, loved himself some Kevin Warren. And I think Larry Scott loved himself some Larry Scott. Like, it's, you know, it's the same character. Brent Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, I mean, we know who Brent Yormark is. He's a salesman. You know, I don't think these characters really care about college athletics. And I think that part and parcel is the problem. we got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the mess at Michigan. We're going to talk about a broadcaster who's lost his job over a slip on air. What do those two things have to do with each other? I don't know, but uh, I've got a theory on it. We'll also talk about your favorite college football player. I was thinking about this over the weekend. Not the best college football player to ever play. Because if, if you say to me, hey, who is the best college football player to ever play? I would, I would give you somebody like, uh, you know, Reggie Bush. I'd give you Bo Jackson. I'd give you Herschel Walker. I might even go back to USC in the late 1970s and give you Charles White, who is just a fantastic running back. Like, there were some dominant players in college football over the years. But, the, you know, I'm not asking who's the best. I'm asking who was your favorite. Like, who did you enjoy seeing play the most? I'll tell you who I enjoyed seeing play and why uh, this question was on my mind. But I tweeted it out over the weekend. Plus, we'll talk about a local company that is involved in a consolidation that involves wager, sports wagering and trading cards. A lot to talk about on today's show. Stephen, what would you do this weekend? Did you get out to the uh, sports card collectible event that you were going to? Yeah, we did. Uh, it turned out to be pretty fun. It was pretty crowded, a lot of people there. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, so it had a lot of uh, me avoiding people. But at the same time, you know, uh, <laughs> the oldest, he made a couple trades with some uh, ra- with some random kids that he met there. So that was pretty cool. Cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's just a lot of uh, get the community together, you know, living out in Milwaukee, uh, you know, local business, uh, supporting them. So got got all the kids out together and had a good time. I like it. I like it. I, I mean, I find myself, you know, obviously I collected cards as a kid, and I unfortunately was collecting cards in the 1980s and late mid to late 80s mostly, and then, um, you know, in the 90s when cards all became worthless. Like, some of my stuff was good, but I did have the fortune of buying some vintage cards when I was a kid, and they weren't that expensive. Now they've skyrocketed in value, but um, I find myself kind of thinking about, you know, I'm glad that kids are into it. I'm glad that you said it was crowded because that makes me feel like, hey, you know what? There's a future for this industry. I don't want to. I don't want to die with this this uh, generation that's into, um, you know, all the uh, uh, NFTs and video games, right? I I, I want to see like, you know, there's still some kids that are willing to go and meet with another kid and make a trade. Yeah, it was really cool. You know, um, you know, I think there's like. There's one owner, there's one other guy that works there, and, you know, they were both super nice, and, you know, they're just, you know, uh, just kind of evaluating your cards on the spot. If you have anything good, like, hey, do you want to trade for any of these cards? And, uh, yeah, so my oldest, you know, he was having the time of his life out there uh, just trading with other kids. You know, he made a few few trades that I thought, eh, you know, what, what not not the best trade, but he didn't get ripped off, so I was there to make sure he didn't get absolutely hosed by some of these other kids because they were, I mean, John, there were some – high level cards there like people had their briefcases that are like locked really? up yeah like a bunch of padding and stuff in there so it was i need to get a briefcase yeah just walk it was around the event like that it was impressive it was impressive that some of these kids what they had i talked to one dad he said he had every adley rutschman card that's ever been made so far 
you know, he's he's going all in on Adley, which isn't a bad isn't a bad That's bet. Not a bad bet. Not a bad bet. Uh, yeah. So it was very uh, very interesting, very intriguing. I learned a lot of things, and uh, I assume you know I've been heard, told they do these uh, you know once a month about. So we'll be back probably. All right. Let me know next time. Maybe yeah. it'll pop up. I know I said I was going to go, but man. I gotta be honest here, and and no, no, don't anybody tell Anna this, please, because she'll never let me hear the end of it. But, you know, I'm doing double duty. I'm still, you know, I'm being dad, but Anna's off with uh, her own father who is in Taiwan, and you know, he he lost his wife. Anna's stepmom passed away a couple weeks ago, as I mentioned last week, and um, he, you know, he's been struggling, and so she was really worried about him, and justifiably so. And he's aging, and he's over there. He's alone. Uh, his head was spinning, and he was calling in the middle of the night, and she was really worried about him. And I, you know, I was like, "You better go, you know, you 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 better be there." And so she did. She hopped the flight and flew over, and has spent you know several days with him now. And he's coming back. But I, I you know, I've been doing like, you know, I'm doing the dad duty, packing lunches, kids to school. Then I'm doing my job, and then the dog needs to go to the dog park, and all this stuff that Anna normally does. And uh, one of the moms today at drop-off at school, I'm walking by her, and I told her, I said, you know, she says, when does she get back? And I said, oh, she's coming back this week. And uh, she says, oh, and she goes, how has it been? And I said, it's actually felt like it's been about 15 minutes. Like the last week has felt like 15 minutes to me. You know how when you have a job and you're so busy inside the job that the day goes fast? Or if nobody's there, like you're not busy, you're just sitting around, it drags on? My days have been very fast. I'll catch you up on some of that stuff. Uh, up next, though, we're going to go to Oakland. Why are we going to Oakland? Well, there's a hiccup, in the A's move to Vegas. Will it derail the whole thing? Uh, I know Portland baseball fans are eager for that deal to get done. I'm kind of wondering if this dragging out a little bit and getting a little messy could help Portland get its act together. We need more time is what I'm saying. Can we get a 20 here? Uh, We'll come back and we'll talk with a reporter who covers the A's and who's all over the stadium hiccup developing in Vegas. Leave it here. Well, the A's off to Vegas, right? Or are they? Uh, I've been thinking a lot about it because I know people in Portland really want this A's to Las Vegas or A's staying in Oakland situation to just get resolved so that Portland may uh, position itself potentially for uh, an expansion team. But uh, Casey Pratt, who does a fantastic job for ABC7 in the Bay Area, has been on the show before. Um, Casey Pratt has been following the potential move of the A's to Vegas. There's a lot of fiction. There's some truth in this. But uh, there seems to be a uh, bit of a hiccup. John Fisher involved, Dave Cavall involved, um, A's ownership and team president and People in uh, Vegas probably not used to dealing with people like John Fisher. Here to talk about it, Casey Pratt, ABC7 in the Bay Area. Uh, Casey, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, John. You bet, you bet. Uh, you, you, you hit a home run last time, so we bring you back every time. But uh, <laughs> nice. when you look at the A's, okay, so, you know, we all, from our, from our vantage point, Casey, we heard, you know, A's going to Vegas, knocking down the Tropicana, building a stadium, and we thought, okay, it's over and done. But it it appears as though there's some problems here. What can you can you get to the root of the problem? Yeah, I think the root of the problem is is that the A's owner would like to look everywhere for money but his own wallet. 
that's that's the root of the problem uh, in Las Vegas. Yeah, John Fisher apparently has ticked off some of the executives on the Strip uh, who are uh, trying to. Is he looking for like you know? Hey, I don't want to put any of my money into this deal. Like no money, and he wants a stadium. I I think he wants to put in as little as possible, and and that same premise applied in Oakland. And if you look at what's going on right now in Las Vegas, I think a lot of this sort of rush to a finish line is by design. They're trying to ram through some legislation before people have a chance to really realize what's happening. Um, You know, out in Vegas, they've been telling the A's, we need you to select a site because we have to pass legislation for the site in order to give you the money that you want. And they waited almost till the end of this legislative window to close before selecting a site which was the Wild Wild West site off strip. And then just 20 days later, they selected a whole other site, which was the Tropicana site. So it's it's a bit chaotic and rushed out there right now. And they really are asking for $395 million from, you know, the public. And the public has no idea what's going on. And, and sort of seems like the legislators are a bit in the dark out there too. What is the reaction in Oakland to this? Is there is there – Hope that the deal goes sideways, Fisher has to come back hat in hand, or are people so done with John Fisher and the A's that they're that they're ap- apathetic about it? I think if you look at the seats at the Coliseum, and that's about all you see when you look out at the crowd these days, uh, it tells you everything about how people feel about the ownership in this team. Um, you know, this isn't an indictment on the players or – you know, the fan base, it's an indictment on the way the ownership has treated the fans. Even since he became the owner, they've, they've never invested. You know, the, the last contract they signed that was a major deal was Eric Chavez. And that was six years, $66 million. And John Fisher even inherited that deal. They haven't signed a deal larger than that since. And I think that what people would really rather have is for the A's to be sold. If they do strike out in Vegas, I think the dream scenario for people would be the A's are sold to an owner that wants to build in Oakland and then Vegas gets an expansion team because I think Vegas would be a great baseball market too. Or even Portland, right? Portland's got work to do though, Casey. I mean, city leadership uh, kind of bumbling around, not real supportive. Um, There would be no... There would be no ambition here uh, and no motivation by taxpayers to help John Fisher out. And so, you know, I think Portland would be looking for somebody to come in and do what the Giants did in San Francisco and fund that ballpark uh, by themselves. Uh, Casey Pratt, ABC7 in the Bay Area, is with us, been all over this A's thing. I mentioned the Giants, the territorial rights of the Giants. Can you help us understand that? I grew up in the Bay Area. I always felt like, there should be a team in Santa Clara. There should be a team in San Francisco. It would have worked. What What's going on with territorial rights? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take this two different directions. So bear with me, John. Okay. First and foremost, the Haas family had the territorial rights to San Jose. They were the owners of the A's back in the heyday when the A's had the highest payroll in baseball. The Bash brothers, Ricky, you know, all these guys. Uh, you you remember that well? I'm yep. Sure. Yep. So. The Giants were talking about moving to Florida, St. Petersburg, and out of the goodness of his heart, in, in an effort to help the Bay Area, uh, Haas family gave the Giants the territorial rights to build in San Jose, trying to keep the Giants in the Bay Area, trying to save the franchise so they don't leave. 
And what ended up happening was the Giants didn't build in San Jose. They ended up figuring it out in San Francisco, but then they held on to those territorial rights. So when the A's were sold, Lou Wolf fought the team. He wanted to move the A's to San Jose, but the Giants weren't ready to give up those territorial rights the A's gave them for free and really blocked their path to San Jose. Now, you could say the Haas family was being kind. You could say the Haas family was trying to let the Giants take San Jose so that they would be further away and not in San Francisco. I mean, there's some other ways you could look at this. But the bottom line is they gave the Giants the rights. The rights were not given back. And then John Shea of the Chronicle, just a phenomenal baseball writer, reported that they had actually found some minutes from an MLB meeting pertaining to this saying that the Giants' territorial rights to San Jose were contingent on them building there, meaning that they never built there, which would mean they should have gone back to the A's. So hmm. it's still a saga after all these years. Yeah, and I, and I just felt like that maybe that would have been the solution for one of these teams. I know the Giants ultimately ended up in San Francisco, but uh, I always felt the South Bay was underserved, and maybe that would be uh, a way to keep them both. But, uh, again, here we are uh, talking about it all these times later. Casey Pratt, ABC7, was with us. Okay, so the other night um, – just over 2,000 show up at the Coliseum. You mentioned, hey, that's fans just basically going, we're done with John Fisher. We're done with it. And, you know, how is this team performing with, with all of this going on in the background? Well, I mean, not well. <laughs> uh, and, again, that's largely because they strip the roster down to the studs. Uh, and by studs, I don't mean star players. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what they ended up doing was, they're not spending any money. I mean, the A's are basically spending only the amount they're getting back in their TV deals on the roster. They have the lowest payroll in baseball and the results speak for themselves, you know, but some of the guys that are still there and some of the guys that have left recently, you know, I've spoken to them and they said that they really felt they had something special going on. Uh, the 2020, 2021, those years, um, you know, the A's won 97 games back to back years. Yep. Uh, they they weren't able to get over the hump, but, you know, they're competing with the Astros. And I think a lot of those guys felt like if the ownership group had given them any support at all to get over the hump, to win with that young nucleus, to keep that team together, that they could have done something really special. I think those guys really are still perturbed by the fact they didn't get the support and that the team got torn down uh, because they had a really good young core. I know you got guys like Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, uh, Sean Murphy's just crushing it in Atlanta now too. Uh, they had good players, but yeah, they, at this point, um, you know, it's, it's a roster of, you know, triple a talent. You know, you do, you do a lot of interviews in one of the interviews you were doing, you know, you were talking about, uh, the host was talking with you about separating truth from fiction. Uh, often when teams leave, it's the city that they're departing that gets blamed. Hey, the city didn't have their act together. The city didn't give them what they wanted. Um, is it the city, or is this more of a, the trio of Dave Cavell and John Fisher and maybe Rob Manfred, who who really were looking to, you know, hey, we're just done dealing with this Oakland situation. We need him in Vegas. Yeah, so it's interesting because I think it's easy to blame the city. I think it's easy to blame the politicians. But they really did have to stand up to the A's because you're seeing it happen in Las Vegas right now, the exact same thing just sped up where they keep asking for more, 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 more. And it, you can't just give them everything they ask for, especially when they're owned by a billionaire. And I think if you look at what Oakland offered up 
to the A's and what they accomplished. You know, the, the A's asked them to get $352 million to fix the area around the ballpark. They got $375 million with $100 million more pending in grants right now. That could be up to $475 million. The city and the county made a deal where they'll help reimburse the A's for the on-site infrastructure, the area where the ballpark would actually sit, which would be countless, probably hundreds more million dollars. So, you know, the city of Oakland did literally everything they could in terms of funding John Fisher's ballpark project where, you know, he was just going to build the stadium and then everything else around it, um, he needed help and they delivered, but it just wasn't enough. They still wanted more. They couldn't come to terms on a deal. And, you know, when the, when this whole thing blew up, I, I talked to several different people um, within the city and I was told the the deal was so close that it was $88 million apart um, pending the last grants that they're expecting to get. And, and that is such a, it's a lot of money for you and me, John, but for, <laughs> for a billionaire, I mean, you're seeing guys getting a lot more than that every single off season in free agency. It's not really that much money when you're talking major league baseball. What is this about for John Fisher in your mind? You know, is he just trying to, uh, you know, move to Vegas, increase the valuation of the franchise uh, by a multiple of five or ten, and then, you know, exit? Or does, you know, is he, you know, what is it about? You know him and have been around the A's a lot longer than all of us. Well, you know what? I, I've been around the A's a very long time. I mean, I, my first A's credential was in 2005. Uh, I've never met John Fisher. I've never spoken a word to John Fisher. And I don't think anybody in the media has spoken to or met John Fisher. And so it's hard to say what he wants. I mean, and that's the problem with him as an owner is he's invisible and he's not available and you don't see him anywhere. And so I don't know what he wants. My best guess as to what he wants, if you just read the tea leaves, is I think he wants to get to a deal for a new ballpark as quickly as humanly possible so he can 3X or maybe even 5X his franchise and then sell and get out. Because I, I just don't think based on the evidence, if you look at his track record and every decision he's made and every move he's made, and there's a lot of other interesting details, but it doesn't seem like he has the liquidity. Uh, he is the owner of the Gap, the Gap stock has been tumbling every day for many years. Um, I just think that he's trying to to leverage a deal in an almost pump and dump fashion. Like, let's get this thing done and get out. Like, let's make this money and be done. All right. So does it feel like the A's are gone and this is just a problem with the A's in Vegas? Or in your mind, Casey, is this uh, is this like a, a, a shoelace that's not tied here that's flopping around on the on the pavement? I think it's very much flopping around. I think that the last time we talked, it looked like far more of a certainty because nobody had seen the fine print or even understood what they were asking for yet. And now that you see what they're asking for, it's not being met with a uh, warm reception. Um, <laughs> for them to come in there and say, we got a site. Oh, no, 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 no. Now we got another site. Oh, I know you're running out of time, but we need $395 million for us to be interested in building this ballpark. And uh, now we want free land on the strip and this other development money. And, oh, yeah, waive the MLB relocation fee for us. It, like, everything is just adding up. 
it, it's adding up in a way that uh, isn't really very favorable for Las Vegas. So if they get a deal done with this ownership group out there, it'll be largely attributed to Las Vegas's ability to get the yes on things. I mean, they lured the Raiders there. The Golden Knights thing was built and, and I believe completely funded by the Golden Knights owner. Uh, and those, you know, have been different types of deals, but I think they really want to make things happen out there and they find a way to do it. So it would be a credit to Las Vegas, but it would, it would be a deal that I think would be tough to swallow for them. And I think that everybody out there would be happier with an expansion team and, and a different ownership group involved. Yeah, and I, and I actually think they'd be happier with the NBA, right? I mean, I think they'll eventually get the NBA. 100%. I, just, I think baseball ends up alongside like David Copperfield and Carrot Top as attractions. Like it's, it's the Golden Knights, it's the Raiders, it's an NBA franchise, and then there's, you know, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco on a Thursday night at uh, the Wynn Theater, and then there's, you know, Carrot Top and the Blue Man Group and the A's. And it feels to me like there's a saturation there, and I get, like, going to, you know, there's a limited number of home games in the NFL. That stadium's phenomenal. I, I get going to an NFL game. If you're a Patriots fan, you get to see a game in Vegas, you go. But I just, I'm skeptical that baseball fans are going to jump on a plane and say, hey, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go to Las Vegas and then leave the casino for three hours, two to three hours, and go see a baseball game. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, I mean, you mentioned, say, for the sake of example, the Patriots going to see the Raiders play in Las Vegas. Well, how many times a year do you see the Raiders? I mean, they only get eight home games. But how many times do you see that stadium completely overrun by the opposing fans? It happens time and time again. Uh, It is a sea of red when they played the Niners. The sea of red when they played the Chiefs. I mean, when the when the Bears were there, it was completely a sea of orange and blue. So I just don't think that baseball would have that same effect. Uh, you're talking, you know, weekday series against teams that may not travel well. The NFL is a whole different animal, as we all know. And so, I, I mean, they're projecting they need 2.5 million people to show up to that ballpark to even make the numbers pencil out. And last I checked, that's a 30,000 – ballpark they're trying to build you would have to sell more than the available tickets you can even fill in order to hit that two and a half million number and I think the other issue is in a 30,000 seat ballpark you know say maybe there's a down series or two you can't make up for it with like a big Yankee series and sell 50,000 to bounce the number out you're you're maxed at 30 so they're gonna have a really tough time hitting these projections they're trying to say they can hit in order for this to pencil out. It's a really – the more you look at this deal in Vegas, the less sense it makes, to be honest. Casey Pratt with us, ABC7 in the Bay Area. Casey, before I let you go, um, Glenn Kuyper, uh, the A's broadcaster, who was fired by NBC Sports. He uh, used a racial slur during a telecast. He was, he was in Kansas City with the team. He had been to the Negro Leagues Museum, baseball museum. It's a fantastic museum. Um, he, in talking about it um, – used the N-word instead of saying Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. The A's today announced that he will not be returning. He, you know, they're letting him go. How is this going over uh, with the fan base, and did they get it right in, in saying, hey, we, we just can't have you around? And this is such, such a tough one because you're a broadcaster. You know it yep. well. If he gets caught on a hot mic saying something, you know that that he doesn't think other people are hearing, and he drops that word, you're gone. Like you, you're gone instantly, right? He misspoke. The issue is, 
another clip had surfaced where he misspoke the same exact word mm. in a previous year. So I, I know Glenn is not, as far as I know, that type of person that would use that word. Um, but he misspoke. And I think when you misspeak that word, it sort of insinuates that you use that word frequently. And I think that's why it's so tough for them to look past this because it may or may not be true. I don't know. I don't know what he says behind closed doors, but I'm going to knowing him enough say, I I doubt he does do that. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's just a word you can't say, you know, yeah. you just can't. And, it, and yeah. it offends people and it absolutely should offend people. And it's a tough call for them. Um, and yeah, I think you're going to get mixed reviews by the fans because some are going to say, oh, it's cancel culture. And some are going to say, you know, you just period, you can't say that word. So yeah. I think yeah. it's a tough, tough, tough situation out here. Even now, as I went to go say that he was, you know, he was in Kansas City, he went to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I'm being careful, right? Because I want to be really yeah. intentional and clear with it. And that's the part of it that got me is I feel like he was a little flippant and, you know, even uh, let's just say we, you're right. We can't see his heart. Right. And so we don't yeah. know, but I want to believe that people are good and I want to believe that he just misspoke, but man, uh, yeah, that one is, it, it is a hot issue and you're right. You can't, you just can't use that word. Casey Pratt, ABC seven. Thank you. We'll bring you back on getting more updates, but you're all over this. I appreciate your time, Casey. Yeah, happy to talk to you anytime, John. Thanks for the call. All right, there he is, Casey Pratt. Uh, I want to take some phone calls on the Glenn Kuyper front. He gets fired after using a racial slur. He used the N-word. He apologized on air. Subsequent clip comes up that this is the second time he slipped using that word. Did the A's get it right? 503-417-7575. You tell me. Glenn Kuyper, uh, the brother of Dwayne Kuyper, who... uh, Played in Major League Baseball as well and uh, is on the Giants broadcast. Glenn Kuyper was fired by the Oakland A's uh, after he used a racial slur during a telecast. Uh, They were in Kansas City, the A's were. And if you haven't been to Kansas City, there are a few things that you need to do in Kansas City. And uh, one of them is uh, the Negro League Baseball Museum. I went there on a visit to Kansas City a few years ago when uh, Oregon basketball was playing there against Kansas uh, in Kansas City uh, during the NCAA tournament, and it was a it was a treat. It was amazing. And look, I am a baseball fan. I'm a baseball person, and I grew up on the stories and the players and history of baseball and uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, important, uh, should be important to all of us in American history and Larry Doby in the American League and Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson. And um, but really what the museum did for me is I walked through it and I got to be honest with you, I was ashamed of America and America's stance on race, uh, even you know, after uh, slavery and into the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s as baseball was integrating, it was evident that baseball was only integrating because the Negro Leagues were crushing it. They were drawing fans. They had fantastic players. It was it was a show. And I remember growing up on a movie um, 
Great movie with Richard Pryor and uh, Billy Willi- Billy D. Williams was in this movie as well. Bingo Long, uh, Traveling All-Stars. If you get a chance to stream that movie on a Saturday afternoon, it's a treat. And love that movie. And it really does sort of give you a picture into the barnstorming teams of that era. Uh, but Glenn Kuyper and the pregame, as he was talking about a trip to the museum with his colleague, um, he did not say Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. He used the N-word. And it was six innings later that he apologized. That kind of bothered me, that it was later in the game that he apologized. Like, if you really did slip up in that moment, and, you know, we've all slipped up. I'm not saying we've all slipped up like Glenn Kuyper claims that he slipped up. But if you made that slip in that moment, would you not stop there in that moment if it truly was a slip and, in you know, embarrassed, ashamed, and and stop yourself and go, hey, you know, I, I, I misspoke. This is what I said. He didn't. He apologized on air later in the game. He did not get into specifics. Later in the game, he said, quote, he said some, I said something that didn't come out quite the way I wanted it to. And then he later issued a statement through the network after he was suspended saying he could not be more sorry and horrified and I hope you accept my apology. And as our, our guest last uh, segment pointed out, there uh, another clip of Kuiper making the same, air quotes here, slip, surfaced, resurfaced, and the A's today fired him. Um, I want your phone calls on how you would have handled that if you were the Oakland A's. Did they get it right? I've got more thoughts about it, especially being somebody who has a microphone in front of him. Um, I want your take, though, too, at 503-417-7575. Your phone call is coming up. Uh, Great number hour two still ahead. This hour, we're going to talk about your favorite college football player. We're going to give you the great sound, best sound from all around. We scour Earth. The production staff just does a fantastic job working behind the scenes, getting all the Great cuts from the weekend. Got a lot to talk about. You hear from Pat McAfee and all about Carmelo Anthony, who uh, officially retired today. Uh, it looks like we're going to get the Miami Heat against the Denver Nuggets. It is, is it Denver's year? Steven, is it Denver's year? Is it just their year? It really seems that way. I, I was way off on this, John. I thought the Lakers are better. I, you know, the Nuggets are just the best team. They're the best team in the Western Conference. And I'm shocked at what the Heat are doing. I mean, I yeah. still am amazed that they're doing what they're doing. At some point, they're gonna they're gonna start missing shots. They did all season. I think it's Denver's year. We'll talk about that. Plus, this college football season going to be interesting. But I ended last hour by talking about Glenn Kuyper, broadcaster, former broadcaster of the Oakland A's, who got fired uh, for using a racial slur during a telecast. He was describing a trip to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and he did not pronounce the word Negro. He used the N-word. Several innings later, he apologized for said uh, infraction. Uh, There was an internal review. NBC Sports ended its relationship with Kuiper effective immediately today. Um, A person familiar with the investigation said the decision was based on a variety of factors that included information uncovered in the internal review. Apparently, 
it's not the first time he's made this, air quotes here, slip. And I'm using air quotes because I don't know if he slipped or if this is just a word that he uses frequently, and therefore he slips. Now, I'll tell you, being a broadcaster who's got an open microphone in front of him for 15 hours a week, um, when I encounter phrases like the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, I take great care to make sure I enunciate and pronounce and get it right. It's important to me. It's important to my audience. It's important to me that um, you know what I'm saying. And I, I don't know Glenn Kuyper. I don't know his heart. I know he's apologized. I know he's been calling games for 20 years. But those things in my mind don't matter. What matters is what you say and how you react immediately after what you say is almost as important as important to me. I didn't like that he waited till later in the game to apologize. I didn't like that he said that it didn't come out quite the way I wanted to. Um, he later made a stronger statement through his employer uh, after he got suspended, saying he could not be more sorry and horrified by what he said, and he apologized. Uh, again, he's the younger brother of uh, Giants announcer Dwayne Kuyper. Um, I don't know his heart. I just know what he said, and I think the Oakland A's got it right. I think, you know, even the investigation, I don't know why you have to investigate. You're either okay with what he said on air and how he reacted after he said it, or you're not. And I think it's deeply offensive, uh, not just to a fragment of the audience or a sector of the audience, as some people will often say. I think it's deeply offensive to everybody, but especially offensive to African-American people who are watching the broadcast. I, I, it's, it's, you know, I, look, we, you know, I've, I've been in this business long enough to know that, um, you know, I've seen people make slips. And you can tell when somebody makes a slip that they're immediately embarrassed by it. I didn't see that in Kuyper's comments. I watched it. I watched his uh, apology later in the game, and I thought, gosh, even if you're giving him the benefit of the doubt, which I think a lot of people are, including our last guest, uh, his immediate reaction, I wasn't happy with it. Like, it didn't do anything for me, and I certainly think the A's probably felt the same way. I want your phone calls on it, 503-417-7575. You tell me, because I'm willing to say, like, look, people slip. I say the wrong things all the time on the show, but... When If I slipped using that word, I wouldn't blame you for uh, wanting uh, no part of listening to this show. And if I slipped using that word, uh, I would immediately be horrified and embarrassed and, and uh, immediately react to it. And I didn't see that from Kuiper in this case. And I watched it, and I went, whoa. And so I don't know. You know, I, I don't want to say that this is a word that he's so comfortable. He's used it hundreds of times, and he was obviously comfortable with it. Some people are claiming that. I don't know his heart. But I know what he said, and I know how he reacted. And that's how I have to judge Glenn Kuyper. I'm not condemning him. I think we all uh, just sort of go, you know, you judge on that moment or you don't. Let's go to the phone line. Stephen, I want to know what you think, too. You have an open mic in front of you all week long as well. But Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie, weigh in on this. John, if I knew what you were going to say, I wouldn't have wasted my, your time of having you listen to me. I totally agree with you 100%. Strike one, strike three, his apology after he had heard what he said on the 
was much yeah. different than after he was later in the yeah. interview room uh, on the record. That's embarrassing. I made a miss. Oh, come on. At that point, you say, folks, I am just sitting here shaking and horrified at what I've heard that I said that came out of my mouth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Um, I've been in a room playing cards with some guys when we were in college, and it was a mixed crowd, and a guy slipped. He said, please. And the room got extremely quiet, and he said, I can't believe I just said that. He goes, I've heard it so many times. He just went into apologetic mode, and you could tell, and the guys kind of accepted that, you know, that, okay, da, 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 much different. Yeah. Your phone's breaking up, but I get the point, Charlie. I'm going to tell a story. Years ago, I was uh, I was working in Indiana, covering Indiana basketball. Left that job, went to Florida. I was in Tallahassee, Florida, and I went to uh, work at. Uh, I was considering going to graduate school, and I went to work at a small newspaper there in Tallahassee that uh, was published by a guy who owned it and operated it, and you know he was just a folksy guy that was hanging out in Tallahassee. Uh, I did note upon getting to Tallahassee that I was, for the first time in my life, living in a place where I felt tension that was racial. I did not feel that growing up in the Bay Area. I did not feel it in Indiana. I did not, you know, I, 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 I've felt at times that I lived in diverse or not diverse places, but a racial tension was new to me. And it was to the point where I, for the first time in my life, would walk into a grocery store and I could feel that if I was the only white person in the store, that heads would turn. And then I could feel, too, simultaneously, if I was in an establishment and, you know, uh, somebody who was African-American walked through the door, heads would turn. And I thought, gosh, I'm in the South. Like, you're in the panhandle. Really, Tallahassee is, is more like Georgia, Florida, right? It's not Florida, Florida. And... It was the first time I noted that, and it was really the first time that I encountered people who exposed themselves comfortably as openly racial, like racist. Like the guy who was running the newspaper, uh, I took a car ride with him. I've told this story on air before. I took a car ride with him. We were making uh, some trip to, like, the publishing plant or whatever, and he was, you know, and we're, we're driving, and... We're uh, at a crosswalk at a stop sign, and an African-American guy is crossing the street, and I thought nothing of it. And he started in make, you know, with racial, like openly racial comments about him. I was so uncomfortable. I almost jumped out of the car. Like I was just so – like my skin was crawling. And I was immediately aware that of two things. One, this guy's racist that I am in the car with. And two, he thinks I'm okay with this, which I couldn't decide which was worse in my mind. And I left that job without picking up my paycheck. I never went back. I moved. I took a job at the Fresno Bee in California. I never, he's, you know, the guy tried to contact me. I owe you a paycheck. Nope. I don't want your money. I want your paycheck. I, I almost, I told Anna this one, I said, I, I, I said it's the only time I've almost jumped out of a moving car because I thought to myself, I don't want to be near this person. But when I heard the Glenn Kuyper word, I don't want to call it a slip because I don't know if it's a slip or not. What struck me was, A, 
he messed up. He said this, and you shouldn't say that publicly on open airwaves. Even if that is in his heart or not in his heart, that word should not have gone out over the airwaves. Secondarily, his reaction, it it bothered me that he didn't immediately react. You could tell his co-host was like, did you just say that? And he just continued to talk, like maybe nobody will notice. Or I don't know. I don't know what was going through his head. Maybe he didn't realize what he said. I don't know. But I didn't like that, it, A, it went out over the airwaves. B, he didn't immediately re- correct it and retract it and, and talk candidly about how embarrassed he was or what whatever was on his mind in that moment. And so I think the A's have no choice at that point. I think you have to fire him because I think, you you know, you A, or if you don't, you're condoning the use of that word and and his apparent um, lack of remorse in the immediate moment. Stephen, where do you stand on that? You have an open mic in front of you. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But, you know, I, uh, I'm i going to tell you, whenever I go to pronounce words that could potentially be offensive to anybody else or derivatives uh, or words that could be mistaken, I am very careful. Yeah, 100% fire for me. Like, I feel like this is um... – it's like one of those things if someone's been drinking too much and they say something, well, it was just because the alcohol. Well, no, I feel like that's kind of within your body and your soul and your system at some point, and it's just now coming out because you're you know you're less conscious about it. I, it may be a slip, it may not, but there's no there's no room for that word anywhere over the airwaves, especially from a white guy. So, hundred percent fire. I'm with you on this one, John. Like, it doesn't really bother me that, um, you know. No matter how he reacted, whether he apologized right away or he didn't, it doesn't bother me because I feel like once you said that word and he said it so confidently, I felt like like it just it was too big of a slip for me. And saying that word just it's just not good. There's no like you said with your boss in that situation. There's no point to that. And if you have him back on and you keep him there, you're agreeing that it's okay to say that and it's not. So hundred uh, percent fire. I'm on board with that. Yeah. And uh, what would you have done? You're in a car with somebody who. I mean, say it's your manager in a job, you're meandering along. All of a sudden, he starts just unleashing a, uh, you know, a string of racist language and thoughts. And what would you have done in that moment? Because the one thing I didn't do is I didn't like confront him about it in that moment. I, I, sh- and that's my regret as I look back because I was so uncomfortable with it. I was shocked by it. And I was like, I was processing, and I was like, I need to get out of this car. I need to get away from this human being. What would you have done? Yeah, it's easy to say, you know, confront him, right? And like, you know, say something right away. I don't know if I would have. Um, I would have been shocked. I was kind of in this situation once when I was being an Uber driver. Um, I picked up an older huh. white gentleman, and he was telling me back when he was in school, um, you know, the best way to argue with people is to take the other side. And he was telling me about some report about how he they were talking about slavery. And so he took the side of, well, slavery was good. And I remember saying to him, I said, like, you don't believe that, though. Right. And he, you know, then he went off about all the things that he said was good. And I and I said, like, I don't agree with any of that. And I told him that. But it's not like I'm going to fight him or kick him out of the car. So I, you know, I didn't really confront him, but I said something at least. So in that situation, John, I don't know. I would like to think I would confront him. I would like to think I would say, you know, you're totally off base with this. Like, why would you think I, I agree to what you're saying? But it's hard to say because I've never been in that spot. I was trying to figure out: was he joking? Is was he testing me? Was he? And and by the time, you know, it was like a five minute car ride. By the time I got out of that car, I was like, I am done with this guy. I want nothing to be. I don't want to be around this human being. Like. 
I saw, I, I realized I saw his heart, and it wasn't good. Sam's in Portland, and Sam has called in. Sam, what's on your mind? Well, John, just listening to you and, and hearing this situation and the uh, situation with Shem Beckler in Michigan, yes. um, it, 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 it's becoming clearer to me as we move move on in life and um, a certain influence, a, a certain leader that's influenced people being honest to who they are. It's that old saying, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. Um, you know, as nice as he may have been as a as a announcer for 20 years, uh, there's a side that we obviously don't know about him. And and I say that because, you know, you don't just say that word. I mean, that, that word's not in my vocabulary, and I've been doing racial justice for 30 years. I, I don't use right. that word. I don't slip and say that word. Um, and I think what's happening today is that people are feeling more comfortable in in being racist or saying terms like that and and not worrying about what the impact is because they they either in their private life or their friends or family they use those terminologies uh, those terms or you know Schimbeckler's liking tweets about racist stuff um and, and i think you know if you say that for you for example we love you you're great you're, you know you're always trying to get people to think you're challenging us you know you're talking about diversity you, you, you know, we know who you are, John. But if you slip and say that word, it's like, hey, sorry, you know, you got to right. go. I mean, there's just some words and some things you can't and you should never say in private or especially out loud when you have an audience and you you can influence people. So I think they got it right. And it just amazes me how many times we have to continue to go through this, like, you, you just know there's certain things you can't say and do when you're in a public light or in private. And, uh, you know, Shem Beckler's another example. You know, we, we, we know who he is. When he's not in the limelight, he showed us who he is, so believe him. Yeah, it, interesting. Uh, you know, you drew the parallel. I was, uh, I was thinking about uh, it as well in context of, for people who don't know, Michigan just fired uh, Glenn Schembechler, or he resigned after um, it was uh, after it was learned that he had liked and tweeted a bunch of things that were racist and inappropriate, and you know uh, a lot of offensive and insensitive posts, including several posts that suggested that slavery and Jim Crow were were positive to strengthen black families and black individuals and. This was not just one tweet. This was years of tweets. And, um, by the way, um, hundreds of thousands of tweets were unliked on Friday night uh, before the account, his, the Twitter account was shut off. Um, it, it, the Michigan thing bothers me for, a, for another reason. You know, one, Michigan says they, they vetted Schembechler before, like, like, Let's let's be clear. His job at Michigan is to go recruit football players, to help recruit college football players. Um, the majority of the players that he's going to be recruited are African-American. If you're Michigan, vetting him is not just calling his previous employers and saying, how is he to work with? Does he respond well to, you know, leadership? Does he, you know, it's not, this is not just an interview this should have been a background check that included somebody scanning his social media to find out what he's about and you know what is he liking 
What is he uh, retweeting? Who is he following? Who is he engaged with? I'm going to tell you that when we were taking on interns and when I look at even volunteers who say, hey, I'd love to volunteer to help with the nonprofit, the BFT Foundation, um, you know, one of the first things I do is I will look at somebody's social media account and I'll say, "Who? what are they about? Are they on social media just flaming people? Are they a troll? Are they uh, racist? Are they profane? Are they going to embarrass me? Uh, these are all questions I ask myself. I got a question for you, John. Uh, going back to Kuiper, when that happened, Dallas Braden, he was the analyst on the broadcast. Should he have said something right then on the spot over the air, or is it in good practice to just let it be there and then have him deal with it? Right? Like I don't know. I don't know what his yeah. what his position should be in that spot. I would I would not have wanted him to immediately jump in and correct because I want Glenn Kuiper to do that. I don't. You know, I wouldn't have wanted the co-host to have to babysit the the lead broadcaster or the analyst or the play-by-play guy to broadcast, you know, babysit the analyst. I I want him to um, allow Glenn Kuyper some room to realize what he just said and react to it. And I thought he was a little shocked and probably trying to figure out, do I jump in here? And I'm going to say something, too, that, like, I love that we can talk about this stuff on this show. A lot of shows will not touch this stuff. They won't. Because the hosts are afraid that they're going to say something that would get them fired. It's safer to not do it. I can tell you, uh, Stephen, over the years, you know, there are like five microphones in the downtown studio, uh, last I remember, and uh, yeah, between the three studios. And I have seen board operators and associate producers back away from the microphone when we start talking about race or gender or trans issues, and we have not done that on this show. I haven't done it, and I like the fact that we can talk about the things that are real, authentic, candid, and sometimes uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable to hear Glenn Kuyper say that. It was more uncomfortable to not hear him immediately react to it. So I don't think – I don't put it on the on the uh, co-host. Like, if he wanted to come in later and half-inning later and say something, yes – but immediately, I'm looking for Glenn Kuyper, who is the actual person who said that, to see what he's about. And I think if if you know the co-host or the play-by-play guy had jumped in there, and and uh, if it's Dallas Braden, right? Is that right. who it yeah, was? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Dallas Braden. If Dallas Braden had jumped in there and reacted, we all would have probably wondered, well, what did Glenn Kuyper have to say? Like, what would his reaction be? I don't want him to. I don't want Glenn Kuyper to be mimicking or parroting what Dallas Braden is saying in that moment. If Braden's horrified by it, I think a half an inning later, though, Braden could come in and go, "Hey, look, you know, um, what you said was wrong." Or I don't know. You know, I don't know what producers were in his ear as well, right. saying, "Hey, everybody, just shut up. Let's figure out. <laughs> let's figure out how big a deal this is." Yeah, because Braden was getting a little bit of backlash on the internet, but of course, everyone gets backlash on Twitter and the internet all the time. But uh, he he basically said like. He, you know, he was listening, but he wasn't listening, so he didn't even catch it when he actually yeah. said it. Because I mean, that happens in radio, right? You're just kind of focused on what you're going to say next, and so he said he didn't even really hear it. But 
Yeah, I just think it's a weird spot where, you know, what what's the right decision to do? Because I obviously you don't think that Dallas Braden thinks that way either, but do you really just jump in and call the guy out? I don't know. It's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard. But I, I think it's different if it's this show and let's say a caller calls in and uses the word. And I think, if, you know, if I hear a caller say that word, I'm going to respond to it and I'm going to say something and I'm going to cut the caller off. And we're going to dump the call or whatever we're going to do. But I think it's different when it's your co-host. I think you have to give Glenn Kuyper some room there to kind of show the audience that he realized what he said and, and let's let him, let's, you know, let him have a reaction to it. And, and I think it's different on this show because it's your name on the show, right? Yeah. So like if, look, that, if a caller said that, like you don't represent that, so you would jump in because this is, this is your show. Like you don't want that on this show. And I've had, I've had callers call in and say things that were offensive. It happens. Like it'll happen this week probably. But sometimes I miss it, and and it, and it bothers me. Like maybe I I think, well, did I mishear the caller? Right? It's different. It's different sometimes. And I go, did I mishear that? Did he say that? So sometimes I'll stop and try to clarify. I've had people call in and say sexist things or racist things, and you know, if I hear it, I'm gonna call them on it. But you know, you're right. Like I'm already thinking about the next segment right now, and if a caller's talking to me and and uses that, I'm going to be thinking. Like, wait a minute, did they just say that? Like, let me, you know, and I'll stop them. But I've had times where a caller has slipped something in, and then we're in the commercial break, and one of my friends will be listening, or Anna will be listening, and or somebody will text me, or somebody will tweet to me and say, hey, that caller just said, and I'll go, did they? And we go back, and, you know, we try to listen to it and react to it, but I don't, br- I don't blame the uh, his coworker any more than I blame the producer who has a chance with a seven-second delay to, to, to cut it or the truck or, you know, uh, the camera person. Like, it that one's on Glenn Kuyper himself. The Michigan thing is different because Michigan should have vetted uh, Schembechler. Like, you know, again, his last name being Schembechler, Glenn Schembechler, um, is probably helps him get that job. He, ha- he was the assistant director of football recruiting at Michigan. And he had a bunch of objectionable and racist content liked by his account. His account's gone now. It's been deactivated. But, you know, Michigan either didn't care who they were hiring or didn't know who they were hiring. And I'm not sure which one of those things is worse. You know, they got that wrong. Really, really bad by Michigan. Punch it audio is coming up. Leave it here. I want you to start thinking about the your favorite college football player that you uh, that you watched. Your favorite player to watch all time. Let me back up and say that again. I want you to think about your favorite college football player to watch play college football. Is that the right way to say it? Why am I struggling with that? I want you to think about the person who played college football who was the favorite player you ever saw. The player you like to watch the most. Right? What he said. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it down as favorite college football player to watch. And then I thought, but I don't want to watch some ex-college football player like sign autographs. It's not, you know, I don't want to watch him in the gym. Be I, weird. I feel like your audience is smarter than that. They, they, we, could, <laughs> we could assume they knew what you meant. I'm coming out of like two segments of talking about, you know, why your words are important, Stephen. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and now I'm bungling them. But the idea came from, I, I, uh, I often do this, I was sitting around for like 10 seconds and I went, you know, I wonder, like, my favorite player that I ever saw play college football, I'm not talking about the best player, 
but the favorite player that I ever saw play. And so we'll deal with this coming up, but I want our audience to start thinking about that player. And I'll tell you who my favorite player that I ever saw play was. And I want to know yours. Not the best player, but the person that you just, like the player you enjoyed watching play. Steven said it better. And so go with him. Let's play Punch and Audio in the meantime. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Joel Klatt talking about the upcoming college football season. He thinks it's going to be as good as ever because of the depth we're seeing in college football. Name, image, likeness, NIL, adding depth to college sports. You get Michael Penix Jr., you get Bo Nix. They come back for another year. Cam Rising comes back. Here's Joel Klatt punching. NIL is creating, like, the dawn of the golden age of college football, which is amazing, partly because I think we're going to have a deeper class of athlete in college basketball and college football more specifically. And we're starting to see that bear out next year. We're going to see the the fruits of the NIL golden age. I believe next year we're going to have as good of a college football season as we've had in a long time, in part because we've got more depth of talent in college football. I'm interested to see how this plays out because on one hand, he's right. NIL is luring or keeping or gluing players to their respective universities, or at least to the college game. You know, I mentioned Michael Penix Jr. I mentioned Bo Nix. Those are obvious examples right in front of us in the Pac-12 conference. Uh, I'm interested to see how that impacts the college game. I'm also interested if there's a to see if there's a trickle-down effect, meaning you're going to get some players who might have traditionally been tossed into starting roles who are going to be backups this season. Will they be better because of it? Will they flourish in a year? You know, Aiden Childs at Oregon State. He's got DJ Uyunglele in front of him. USC's got Caleb Williams. Oregon's got Bo Nix. What does that do to kind of the depth at that quarterback position at Oregon? Does it put Oregon in the business of having to recruit a transfer quarterback every year? Or is there somebody who's in-house who just gets another year to kind of get their feet underneath them and be a college student and then be a player? I don't know. I'm curious to see what happens. We're also in this era of the transfer portal, so I'm curious to see, like, the uh, the highway of activity. You know, players seemingly jumping from here to there to here to there. Like, you know, when it all settles, what will the balance of college football look like? Will the SEC still dominate because it's the SEC? Will there be outliers? Josh Pate talked about Oregon and their recruiting strength. The Ducks have been on fire recruiting. He called him a shark in a lake. Josh Pate on Oregon. Punch it. Oregon, by the way, if they stay in the Pac-12 long term, that is a total shark in a lake. If they go to the Big Ten, and those are just rumors, if they go to the Big Ten, I don't think people realize this. The day they stepped in the Big Ten, they would be one of the premier national recruiting brands in that conference. There would only be one, maybe one, in Ohio State that touches them in terms of national recruiting presence. Now, in fairness, Oregon has to be that, whereas you don't have to be that the further east you get. I told you they got 13 kids verbally committed right now. 
probably about to be 14 tomorrow. Do you know out of those 13 kids, they've got Maryland, California, Texas, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Washington, Arizona, Missouri, and Oregon represented. That's how you recruit nationally. All right, I'm going to use this as a chance to talk about why Oregon probably shouldn't go to the Big Ten or even be interested in the Big Ten. A, they would have to join at a lower distribution number than their peers. So, yeah, even though they're recruiting at a high level, they're going to get less money than their peers in the Big Ten Conference. Oregon's media value, somewhere around $35, $38 million. Uh, You know, the Big Ten Conference presidents and chancellors and athletic directors are not going to subsidize Oregon and say, hey, come on in here and kick our butt. B, again, you're recruiting, you're, you're, you're a so-called shark in a lake in the Pac-12. You're not in a lake in the Big Ten. You're in the ocean. It's salt water. Michigan's in there. Ohio State's in there. Penn State's in there. Guess what? USC's in there. And they're recruiting Los Angeles uh, as well as anybody. Uh, you're now no longer in a lake. You're in, you're in salt water. Uh, Oregon is much better off in the uh, Pac-12 conference. If I'm Oregon, I stay right where I am. Hell, if you're Oregon, you probably hope the four-corner schools leave. So you could be in a six-team conference. You make the playoff every year. Um, Dan Lanning's doing a really good job recruiting. Now he's got a coach, though, right? This season, I need to see defensive identity. I need to see a, a defense that's flying around, that isn't fun to play against, that makes adjustments. I didn't see that last year. I saw a defense last year that was very forgiving and fun to play against. Oregon State had a lot of fun playing against Oregon's defense. Washington had a blast playing against Oregon's defense. That can't happen. That can't continue this season. He's got the talent. Now he's got to coach him. Pat McAfee says it's disgusting that the NFL is considering a rule that would allow fair catches on kickoffs, like the college game. Here's McAfee. Punch it. Nobody really likes this rule potentially being an NFL rule, which would be a fair catch on a kickoff going to the 25-yard line. It's the most amateur Bush League-looking I have seen in a long time when it comes to the NFL. I know there is a strike zone that was put into football so there couldn't be any more head-hunting shots. I understand that they changed some rules so kickoffs can't have as many people back so there isn't as big of a run-up so that we can save people's brains. And a lot of people say, this isn't football anymore. It still is. There's still big shots. There's still entertainment. There's still speed. There's everything good. This particular rule is absolute garbage. Okay? You watch a college football game. And they don't have the same kickoff rules as the NFL. But you watch a college football game, and you see a kicker kickoff. And the ball is spinning, like, normally very fast. And it's like, I didn't hit that solid at all. Let's go to work on that a little bit, you know, especially if we're going to be doing kickoffs on TV. You know, not going to hit everyone perfect. I missed a bunch. But let's not put that on tape. And then people are fair catching it at, like, 15-yard line, which used to be a bloop kick pretty much. And then they're getting the ball at the 25 immediately because of that fair – it's like – this is disgusting. So dumb. It, it is not. This is not what football is. I disagree with McAfee. I think sometimes you get hosts on television and radio who run out of material. It felt to me like that they were in a production meeting and they said, okay, we got one more thing we need to talk about. What are we going to talk about? They, they've already done this in the college game. You get fair catching on kickoffs in the college game. It hasn't had an impact. I, th- I thought we were going to get big impact. I, I don't see it. Are kickoffs really that important? Like I, I just don't. I don't see the importance. Like they're, they're you know they're going out and saying this is this is real football. Like if they do this, they're not real playing for real football. Like I just 
Kickoffs are fine, but I just don't feel like they're the most important part of the game. It seems like they really love them. I was covering the NFL as the NFL columnist at the Mercury News before I came to the state of Oregon. One of the last stories I did was in the preseason of the NFL. I talked with a whole bunch of NFL executives who were concerned about the kickoffs going away at that time. It was 20 years ago. They were concerned that the kickoffs were going to go away. Players hated the kickoffs, especially in preseason. Nobody in preseason wanted to play special teams because they didn't want to get hurt before the regular season. They could get cut. They wouldn't get paid. They would, you know, wouldn't, they'd lose their season. And there was a big discussion about, hey, in the preseason, could we just do away with kickoffs altogether? And, and uh, I just, I don't understand it either. Unless you're talking about, like, it is very exciting when you get, like, a Devin Hester-type player who can, on a given return, change the game. And I get that. But I kind of see the fair catch as a concession by, you know, 30 teams who go, hey, we don't have a guy like that. And and we may never have a guy like that. And we don't want to lose a backup defensive back or wide receiver who happens to be playing special teams. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take some of these off. I'm okay with it. I think college has been better because of this. But um, I don't get why Pat McAfee is so upset other than he was a specialist, right? Maybe he's seeing this as the potential that his position one day could become less important. I don't know. Feels like a reach to me. Michael Block, what a great story over the weekend. Club Pro in Mission Viejo, California. This is a guy who was very emotional over the weekend, part of a great story. If you love good stories, you love a 10-cup story, you love uh, watching regular folks make the PGA Championship and then compete, this is a guy who charges $150 an hour uh, for golf lessons as a pro. Here he is on 15 at the PGA Championship. The fairy tale story. Gets better. A home run for Michael Black. Amazing story. He finished tied for 15th. How much money is it? Well, it's a whole bunch of lessons. This is a guy who charges $150 an hour as a pro, remember. How much money did he make? Uh, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm living a dream. I'm making sure that I enjoy this moment. I've learned that after the, my 46 years of life that uh, it's not going to get better than this. There's no way. No chance in hell. So uh, I'm going to enjoy this, and thank you. We have loved watching you soak in every moment, and the cherry on top was what Jim Nance called an all-time up and down. This par save right here. What did you see? I hadn't made very many putts today. I, I rolled it the same the last three days, and today, just for some reason, the ball was going to the lip, and uh, that one snuck over the lip. And it made my day, and Roy was awesome, man. Everyone was awesome, and uh, I can't thank everybody enough for being so cool to me. 
And cheers to the 29,000 uh, PGA Tour professionals, PGA professionals in the world. Uh, yeah, it's for you guys. We cannot wait to see you next year. No qualifying necessary. That par save locked you into a top 15 finish, which means we'll see you at Valhalla. Music to my ears, my friend. Music to my ears. Thank you. Really good story. This is what it's about. This is what competition, sports, these moments. Uh, in 105 years of the PGA Championship, no PGA pro had ever finished inside the top 10. And it was a it was a wild week. And it was so much fun. And you know what I thought found the best part was just how authentic he was in, like, in an interview like that. Really made it a, a bunch of fun. And, John, $288,000 he made uh, in the tournament. That's uh, 1,920 lessons. It's <laughs> a lot of lessons. Coming up, we'll talk about what the Blazers should do in the draft pick. What's going to happen in the NBA Finals? Uh, are, will the Lakers break up the band? Is Eric Spolstra the MVP of the playoffs? So many questions. I'll give you some answers coming up. When did uh, unruly people on airplanes become such a thing? I don't remember this being a thing. And then now, anytime you go on social media or you uh, scan a uh, news site, there's some unruly passenger who's getting asked to uh, get off the plane. Do you Have you ever been on a plane where there was an unruly passenger? I have never. Never witnessed it in real life. I haven't seen it either, but I see it every day. I don't know. My algorithm must think I'm into this. Maybe I lingered a little too long on some Karen who uh, didn't want to put her mask on on a plane or was being unruly. But it's like I, I don't I don't remember this being like such a thing. Is it just because of social media, I think, like with the phones, yeah. such uh, such access? Yeah, because, okay, so you have a couple of factors. Everybody's got their phone on the plane. And then you have a enclosed environment. It's very easy to hear. So this isn't like being in like a grocery store where some lady's being belligerent in aisle 14. This is like you're in a you're in an airplane, and if you're within like five rows of that person, you can film that person pretty much being an idiot. And then uh, you get it escalates quickly on an airplane. So you have that factor. You have the escalation factor. So you have a closed environment. You have good sound, good acoustics. You've got the ability to film it. So it is kind of made for TikTok or Instagram reels, it, you know, when somebody is being an idiot. But I just, I it feels to me like it's happening every other flight, the way the way that I see this. And I I don't know about you, but I, I remember watching, like, the Seinfeld episode with the soup Nazi. You remember that one? No soup for you. That guy? And they, they would go it and they order the soup and they step to the side because they want the soup so badly they just kind of behave. When I get in TSA at the airport, I, I sort of uh, I sort of acknowledge that I'm giving up my right to kind of be a smartass. You uh, you don't joke around. You don't mess around. You, I'm there to kind of get through there, be part of the pit crew that is very efficient in getting everybody through the line. Like I you know I'm getting my water bottles empty. My uh, if I if I'm not TSA pre, my shoes are off, my belts off. I'm not holding up other people, and then I get through there. And then I get on the airline, and guess what? The flight attendants, the flight attendants are like, um, I treat them like I treated my second grade teacher in elementary school. You know, Mrs. Arojo, she was the boss. There was no back talk. She told me, you know, sit over there. You're, we're moving your desk. I moved my desk. If I said, can I raise my hand? Can I use the restroom? She said, not right now. I didn't go. I didn't pout. I didn't call my parents. I didn't say, you know, I have a, I have a right. You know, I didn't do any of that. 
I think I, messing around in a security line at the airport may be the easiest way to get 100% of people mad at you. Yes. Because you can, or, you, you yeah. can say, like, you know, we talked about, you know, Kuiper being racist. Some people probably liked it, right? Like, it wasn't 100%. Yep. Like, this is 100% of people are going to hate you. They're going to hate your guts because you're wasting their time. Kevin Durant was in front of me in the Air TSA line once. He was in college at Texas. He, his team had just lost in Spokane in the NCAA tournament. They lost, I think, in the second round. And he's flying out of the Spokane airport, tiny little airport, and he's in front of me in TSA. And I'm watching him. I'm watching him because I'm thinking, let's find out what this guy's about. And what is he about? And Kevin Durant goes through the security line. He's taking his watch off. He's taking his shoes off. He's taking his belt off. He had a million accessories. I've never seen anybody more accessorized. Uh, you know, maybe one of my daughters. He must have had a good NIL deal. Yeah, he was, um, and he was also a giant. And I was just kind of struck. There have been a few times in my life where I have encountered an athlete, and I've gone, "Oh, this is a mutant." Leonard Marshall, New York Giants defensive tackle, one of my first times being in an NFL locker room. I turned the corner and I saw Leonard Marshall in uniform, coming up the tunnel. And I realized that his hip bone was about where my shoulder was. And I was like, oh, that's an NFL player. Like, that's the size. And the field's the same size. And these big guys are running around. That, that's a different game. Yao Ming walking through the tunnel at what was uh, Rose Garden Arena. And uh, seeing his silhouette sort of as he came through the tunnel. And I'm passing him. You just realize how large this human being is. Mutant. Kevin Durant was the same way. As he walked through the metal detector, I looked at him, and I, uh, the, the thing that came into my mind was Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. And you know how when the alien just popped out of the stomach and, you know, there's all this, like, Sigourney Weaver dealing with an alien? I thought, this guy's an alien. Like, he's not from Earth. Like, look how long his arms are, his legs are. Like, he was just different that way. But he was slow through that security line. It made me not like him. You know, you, you know what I mean? Like you, you will develop feelings going through the TSA line about the person in front of you or not. It was and at I that moment you knew they needed yeah. to draft Odin. Like Odin in that was the moment, pick. I was honking twice or whatever it was, but I, I got it wrong. But here's the here's the thing. Uh, Anna has this habit of having a water bottle, and I will not only do I have to worry about my stuff, I have to turn to her in the security line and be like, "Did you empty your water bottle?" Because she often doesn't. And it causes a delay, and I don't like that. I'm part of the pit crew, okay? We'll talk about the NBA and what the Blazers should do in Hour 3. We also have the 5 at 5 starring Steven, plus the burning question that Steven uh, got better than I did. Um, what's your fa Who is your favorite player to watch play college football? We'll talk about it. This show is sailing along. I don't know what you did this weekend, but... Uh, our seven-year-old, she's seven now, Soji, I wrote about her on Sunday. I wasn't planning on it, but she had a hell of a Saturday. Anna's been gone. She's in Taiwan helping her dad. It appears that her dad is moving to the state of Oregon in a couple of days, packing up uh, his belongings. By the way, uh, if you want an idea of how much stuff you have around you i don't know our garage is filled with stuff the attic stuff there's too much stuff too many things anna was telling me that 
her dad is packing up for this move. So he's kind of cleaning out everything, giving away stuff, whatever. And he has reduced everything that he is going to bring to the United States to four suitcases. Four large size suitcases. Stephen, if you were going to pack and move to another country, you had to leave what didn't matter behind. How many suitcases? I think probably like 400. <laughs> Definitely not four. I think I would. I think I could get away with. I think I could get away with two. I'm not a stuff person. I just, you know, need some clothes. Some clothes. I have some favorite clothes. I don't have that many favorite clothes. I think it would be kind of cathartic to give away everything too. Then you just buy like new bedding and stuff when you're there. You start over, man. Just leave it. Walk away. Just walk. But uh, Soji over the weekend, um, she lost a tooth on Saturday. It's a big deal. It was one of her important teeth right up front. And she was complaining that, you know, it was wiggling. And I said, oh, it'll come out in a couple of days. Within an hour, she produced the tooth, pulled it out herself. And uh, that was a big deal. And so we kind of faced, we recorded, we didn't FaceTime. We recorded a video of her with her to send to her mom because of the time difference in Taiwan is 16 hours. They're 16 hours ahead. They're waking up right now. It is Tuesday morning, right now, bright and early Tuesday morning. And uh, Soji sent the video to her mom, and I think Anna was a little bit – she was really proud of her or whatnot, but she was a little bit wispy that she missed it. And then, and then later on Saturday, Soji asked me – and we call her Soji. Her real name's Sojourner. But Soji asked me, um, Dad, could you take the training wheels off the bike? Now – I'm the guy who trains our kids, teaches our kids how to ride a bike. I do almost nothing else. Anna does everything else. She works with the kids, homework, and volunteers in their classes, and drives them everywhere, and signs them up for everything. And But when it comes to learning to swim or learning to ride a bike, I'm like, I step in. I'm like the specialist, okay? So... She says, Dad, and, and by the way, if you're a parent who's got a young kid, the, one of the keys is let your kid come up. Your kid will know when they're ready. You can you can make a suggestion like, hey, you think maybe we could take those training wheels off, but don't push it because if the kid's not ready mentally, you're not, you're not, it's not going to work. I've tried it. Third daughter. I'm an expert, okay? So the other two daughters, I've, I've perfected this. I have a technique. I know you probably have a technique if you've taught your kids how to ride a bike, but I've got a technique, and I think, you know, within about 15 minutes I can get the kid riding a bike usually if they're ready. So she says, Dad, I would like to take off the training wheels and like to ride a bike. And I said, okay, as long as Mom's out of the country, let's do it all. What could go wrong? So uh, it took us – we did this at about maybe about 7 o'clock on Saturday night. It only took us about five minutes. I uh, put on a good pair of tennis shoes. I began by uh, telling her, hey, just uh, get a feel for it. I want you to just kind of coast on your bike a few feet, get a feel for the balance of the bike, all that. Okay, let's do that a couple times. Okay, now I'm going to hold the back of the seat. I'm going to run with you. I will not let you fall. And her sister vouched for me. Her 8-year-old sister said, Dad's not going to let you fall. Trust me. And uh, that meant a lot to me. And so, uh, so it was like having a Yelp review from one of the sisters, Handy. And so I began running down the street. I wrote all about this. If you want the full details, read it. I had a whole bunch of grown men who wrote to me after reading Saturday's column or Sunday's column at johnconzano.com who uh, said, you made me cry, you made me cry, you made me cry. And that's my goal. 
It's one of my goals. I want you to cry over breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever it is. That's one of my goals. I'll make you feel. I don't know. But it struck me in helping her ride this bike that, like, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage in our family. And, and you know, if you have raised kids already and they're gone, I had a friend reach out and said he, he misses the chaos. I love that. He misses the chaos of having kids around. Um, I don't miss it. So I don't think I'd miss it. But I was running uh, with her with the bike, and I was thinking, you know, about the other two daughters, you know, with every step and how fast it goes. And, you know, that kid that is now in college as a sophomore that I helped ride a bike all those years ago and how you only get that one time to help them in those moments. And you love being there as a parent when a kid takes a step forward, that first step as a baby that they take on their own, that first word. Uh, you know, the swim lesson, learning to ride a bike, uh, when you drop them off at college, uh, you know, drop them at the dorm. And so I'm running down the street. I'm holding the back of the seat of the bike and, you know, talking to her, encouraging her. And, you know, I'm kind of letting go for like a second and then re-grabbing it, two seconds and then re-grabbing it. And, you know, it took us, it only took about 10 or 12 times where she was pedaling and we were going about 50 yards each time. And I said to her, okay, this time I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to let go. I think you can do this. And I began to run with her, and I let go. And I'm running, and she can obviously see me. I'm running right about where her front tire is off to the side. And she says to me, and I posted it on Instagram if you want to see the video. She says to me, am I doing it? I said, you're doing it. She said, I'm doing it. I said, you're doing it. And uh, we got to the end of it. I had tear. I had glassy eyes, and I high fived her. I hugged her. She, you could hear it. Like if you listen, uh, if you uh, go to my Instagram, John Canzano, and you and you watch the video, leave the sound up for the moment where I hug her. She says yes, and it's just the greatest feeling as a parent. I got a text message from Dan Lanning, the Oregon coach, who watched it on Instagram, and he said, "Good job, Dad." And uh, I got a text message from Dan Lanning's father, Don, who lives in suburban Kansas City, who said, uh, you know, that was that was fun to read that. And I, I just think it's very relatable and it, for parents out there. And, Stephen, you've watched your kids. You're watching them grow up. You're watching Milestones. The first day you drop them at kindergarten, they learn to ride a bike. They learn to swim. Um and then pretty soon you realize one day that you're dropping them off at college. It's a it's like a snap of a finger. It's a blink. It's uh, uh, it was one of those moments. And Anna, so we sent Anna the video, and she's like, "What? All these milestones? I I was so tempted later to put the eight year old like in the driveway, put her in the car, pretending to drive, and be like, guess who's driving." <laughs> You know, like we're doing all these milestones where you're out of the country. All right, we have the five at five starring Steven. All right, you got it teed up? Let's do it. The five at five. All right, let loose. What do you have? All right, number one, NBA playoffs are back tonight. Uh, but both are blowout series. Nuggets and Heat both up 3-0 in their respective series. Game four tonight between the Lakers and the Nuggets. Uh, down in L.A., Lakers are three-and-a-half-point favorites, John, in this game to continue the series, but Nuggets big-time favorites uh, to win the overall series. But more importantly here in Portland, lots of rumors about the Blazers in the number three pick. Uh, we got people, Bill Simmons, Ryan Rosillo, 
putting out rumors of Jalen Brown to the Blazers. Oh, let me play that. Okay. Let me play that. I have the audio of that. Let's say it's number three, and it's Simons, and it's a future first, and it's a swap, something like that. Or maybe it's just the number three in Simons. I don't even know what Brown's value is, but you have the number three and you have Simons in it. And maybe more because as we've seen with these trades that we've had lately, I don't know what the values are. But Jalen Brown is the second team on NBA guys, 26. So not getting Lillard. You're trying to pick off Simons in the number three pick. Wow. Mulling this one over. No, because Jalen's worth, I think Jalen's worth more than Lillard, straight up. Well, Lillard's going to be 33 years old next year, and I don't know where that takes you. And the contract. That's an interesting point there. He says uh, Jalen Brown more valuable than Damian Lillard on the open market. I don't know about that. There's reports uh, out of Phoenix. The Blazers are interested in DeAndre Ayton. Maybe the third pick for that. Hopefully not that much because it's not worth it for the Blazers. But I think for NBA fans, this is the best time of the year, John. Uh, Conference finals coming up right before the draft. A lot of rumors. A lot of NBA stuff going down. Look, if you're the Celtics, though, like I I was listening to Rosilio and Simmons talk there. And if you're the Blazers and you, you can get Jalen Brown for Anthony Simons in the three pick. You would think hard about that, but I don't see Boston making that deal. Boston would want Damian Lillard. I agree with that. I don't I don't know why they would want to do just for Anthony Simons. I think if Boston, because Boston still has a core that's going to be good enough to win a championship, right, or be right there. And if they're going to trade Jalen Brown, you got to get another star back, and I think that's Dame at that point. But, you know. Yeah. But if you're Portland and, they are, and they're offering Jalen Brown, you know, for the three pick in Anthony Simons, I'm doing that. You are thinking long and hard about that. For sure. We, we've been team trade Dame in that situation. Yeah. You may trade but for Jalen Brown. But if someone's going to be stupid, you know, let him be stupid. Yeah, Jalen Brown, second team All-NBA, 26 years old. Like, I traded a, a, a 1985 Topps. Uh, uh, I traded a 1985 Fleer Roger Clemens rookie card for a 1985 Topps Eric Davis rookie card. You know, my friend let me be stupid. It let the Celtics. If Celtics are going to do that, yeah, you do it. But this doesn't feel real to me. Like I actually think Boston is going to trade their coach, meaning fire their coach, and and maybe not blow up the roster. The problem isn't the roster. Boston's got a better roster than Miami, and they're down three zip in the series. Number two, number two, the NFL. They are always in the news. They got a couple of rule changes here. We talked about um, Pat McAfee talking about the kickoff rule that could be in place. Uh, there's a new rule now where the Thursday night games can be flexed, John, uh, but it's only between weeks 13 and 17 they'll be eligible to be flexed for Amazon Prime. Teams will be required to receive a minimum of 28 days' notice. Uh, according to the league, the flex option can only be used twice during that five-week window, and each team can only play a maximum of two Thursday night games per season. Now, the NFL also approved a new rule that allows teams to designate an emergency quarterback on game day in result of that NFC Championship game where your 49ers ran out of quarterbacks against the Eagles. The rule will only apply to quarterbacks who are on the 53-man roster. Practice squad players not eligible, but teams now will have a third emergency quarterback if they would like on game day. You know what I love about this? Uh, and I'm not going to talk specifically about any of the rules. I just like that the NFL does this so openly. And you know, I think it works for a couple of reasons. Because I think fans and media all sort of get the idea that the NFL is always tinkering, always trying to make the game better. Some of these other sports do it, but they just don't do it as publicly and as, it, you know, it's not as interesting to me. Like when Major League Baseball or the NFL are talking about rule changes, it always feels a little boring and off-season dry. And this feels like, hey, this is real. The NFL could do any of this stuff. And then ultimately that committee comes back and maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But I think 
I think it's fun the way the NFL does it. It's, always, it's yeah. always proactive, not reactive. It's yes. one of those things. Yeah, like we talked about the Pac-12. It's like they've been reactive the whole time. We'd love to see a little proactiveness here. I like that. Number three. Uh, staying in the NFL, the league announced today that the 2025 NFL draft will be held in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Population of just over 100,000. Uh, uh, Packers President Mark Murphy has had this plan in place since 2016. They put in an official bid for the 2019 draft, did not get it because of the infrastructure, but they have ramped up a lot of construction around Lambeau Field. That's exactly where the play, uh, the draft will take place, inside and around iconic Lambeau Field and Titletown, according to an announcement made by the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay hosting the NFL draft. It seems like the NFL draft, John, has turned into the Super Bowl for smaller markets. Yes, 100% Kansas City, now Green Bay in 2025. It made me think immediately about Portland. You know, Portland might get not get the All-Star game, might never get to the NBA Finals again. Who knows? But how about a draft? Can we do the draft in Portland? I don't know if the NBA draft has as much just credence to it. Like, it's just not as, you know, that, we saw the NFL draft this year. I mean, people go crazy for that thing. The NBA draft in Portland would draw how many fans to Moda Center? I don't know. <laughs> how many Blazer fans are there? Yeah. yeah. Because that's 2,200 be like an A's game. I mean, that's the thing. I've never been to Green Bay, but my dad, he's a big Packers fan. Uh, he was born in uh, Freeport, Illinois, which is right by uh, Wisconsin. So he's been to Lambeau. And over that area, like he says, it's just, I mean, it's just like a little town. So it'll be interesting to see how it looks on TV with all those people. Because people fly in for the draft. We've seen how many people show up. So I, it's pretty interesting that they're going to go to Green Bay, uh, little title town, 2025. Number four story in the 5 at 5. We talked about this already, but A's broadcaster Glenn Kuyper, he was fired today after using that racial slur during a telecast um, against the Kansas City Royals. Same spot that Tom Brenneman used his uh, bad bad word, and he got fired. A uh, person familiar with the investigation said that the decision was based on a variety of factors, including information uncovered in the internal review, which was that he used, a, used that word again. Kuiper apologized on air later in the game without getting the specifics. Said he needed to have, needed to, he said he's something that didn't come out quite the way he wanted to, and then later issued a statement through the network when he was suspended by Kuiper. He is out. He'd been announcing A's games for 20 years in the Bay Area. Look, he used the word the n-word he was talking about the negro league hall of fame in kansas city and he used the n-word okay it, this happened in the pregame right and, it, and he later apologizes several innings later the A's should have fired him in the top of the first bottom of the first maybe between innings like to me that's the disconnect here i think they got it right i just think you know they went suspension then they found that there was one other time that he apparently had, you know, I'm, I'm going to use air quotes, a slip up because I don't know if it's a slip up or I don't know if that's what's in his heart. But I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Like, if you slip up in that moment, your immediate reaction has to be to correct that and apologize immediately. You don't wait several innings later. And he used the N-word with a hard R. Right? Like, it was not like, it. did he say it? Didn't he say it? Like, he said it. And then he acted like he didn't say it for a while. And then he came back after producers probably talked to him. They said, we got complaints. We got go and then he apologized on it. It just, to me, the A's uh, had to do what they did today. I just am a little surprised, I guess, that it didn't happen. Like, hey, we removed him in the first inning. I guess it would have meant more. 
But Glenn Kuyper out of work now. Number five. Number five, ESPN. They ranked the top 75 college football quarterbacks of the 2000s, John. I thought it was pretty interesting the way they had two ducks in there. Joey Harrington, he was in at number 55. Heisman Trophy winner Marcus Mariota, number nine on the list. Now, there's no criteria how they ranked him. It was just combination, best season, best career, just whatever the people wanted to vote for. Um, okay. You want to give me your number one? You want me, I got the top five written down. I can pull up no, the rest no, of the list. No, no, no. Do the top. Do the, let's do this. Or do you let's want to, you want to guess? I got a better idea. Okay. I want to hear from our callers. And I'm going to phrase this in, in a way that is right. That makes sense this time. Who is the player that you enjoyed seeing play the most in college football? Don't tell me the best player. Give me the player that gave you the most joy, the most enjoyment. Who did you enjoy seeing play the most? I'm going to tell you mine. I had a couple that came to mind immediately. One outlier. And, and look, I had people, when I put this on Twitter, I had people say Cooper Cup. Was the, they had the most fun watching him play. That There's no wrong answer here. It's your answer. What college football player did you enjoy seeing play the most? 503-417-7575. You weigh in. And then, Stephen, why don't we start the next segment by you revealing the top five. All right. And then uh, we'll have a big discussion about this. I think it's I think it's a good talk because it doesn't have to be who is the greatest player of all time. It just, who brought you the most joy to watch as a college football player? And, yes, it has to be somebody you watched. You can't come on here and go, oh, Jim Thorpe when he was at Carlisle Indian School. No, that doesn't work. It's somebody that you watch that you say, you know what, that player was the most fun to watch. 503-417-7575. All right, the question that we have been bantering about is about the greatest college football player. No. The college football player that you've seen play that is the most fun to watch, not the greatest college football player of all time. Now, it could be the greatest player of all time. It could be that discussion. But I'm just saying, as a fan, you've watched a lot of good college football players, maybe some great ones. Who is the most fun to watch in your mind? I have one that some of you have probably never heard about that was a lot of fun to watch. I have two, in fact. As I say that, I thought of another one that was a lot of fun to watch play that um, you know, I would love to see another game featuring uh, this player. Now, I'll go back and I'll tell you one of them that that I watched play was a running back named Alonzo Washington. He ended up at the University of Arizona uh, years and years ago. But in the 1980s, Alonzo Washington broke O.J. Simpson's national rushing record at a community college. Now, O.J. Simpson went to San Francisco City College, set the national record, Alonzo Washington played college football or junior college football at Gavilan Community College. Happened to be in my hometown, Gilroy, California. Alonzo Washington was good. They couldn't tackle him. He'd bounce off everybody. He'd outrun everybody. He was a great back. And he rushed for a bazillion yards and made faces in the crowd of Sports Illustrated. And I, I so much enjoyed seeing him play. He was so good that they took the quarterback out of the game and they put him in wildcat formation and they just snapped the ball to him and let him go. And uh, Alonzo Washington was a joy to watch. Another player who was a joy to watch uh, for me was Steve Clarkson, the quarterback who played uh, a little bit in the NFL, 
but was the quarterback at San Jose State when I was uh, a kid. We had season tickets. We'd go watch him play. Clarkson was great. He was dynamic. He was fun. Those were good years. You had Dennis Erickson calling the plays. You had Jack Elway as the head coach. You had Steve Clarkson at quarterback. Now, Clarkson's become a quarterback guru, and he now trains quarterbacks. I'd love to get him on the show and talk about it. I've I've, uh, messaged with him a little bit over the years. He doesn't know that when I'm messaging with him, he thinks, oh, I'm messaging with a media member. He's really messaging with one of his biggest fans because I was like a 9- or 10-year-old kid, and some of this may have to do with your age at the time that you saw the player. I was a 9- or 10-year-old kid, and Steve Clarkson was great. It was fun to watch him play. Now, I've watched Marcus Mariota, fantastic. I've watched uh, Derek Anderson at Oregon State, remarkable. Brandon Cooks at Oregon State, remarkable. Jaquiz Rogers was fun. But I want to hear from you. Which college football player did you have the most fun watching play? Trey, one of my friends, texted me. He said, Andrew Luck and Adrian Peterson. Those those two players. Now, who's yours? 503-417-7575. Uh, Stephen, I want you to give us the top five in a moment. But let's go to the phone lines first. Let's start with Kalani, who's in Portland. Kalani, who you got? Hey, hello, my brother. I hello. got Marshall Falk, San yes. Diego State. Yeah. He was good. He was what? amazing. I was, I was, I was six, seven. The sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I watched him play against Hawaii and just destroyed us <laughs> because yeah. I was a UH, you know, UH fan growing up. I grew up on Kauai. But later on in life, the funny thing is my coach would show me highlights of him playing at UH, and it would be at the game I was at watching Marshall Falk kill my coach. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I love that. Amazing. Uh, I mean, I, the, one that, the, the most memorable game, though, was the 300-yard game he had. I think he had 43 carries in that game. And it was it was just amazing to see someone at that size just destroy people because he was what five yeah. ten one eighty something like yeah. that. I have a fr- in I have college, a fr- oh, I have a friend who went to San Diego State. Let me tell you the story, Kalani. He went to San Diego State. He had a PE class, and Marshall Falk was in his PE class. He, I believe he, I believe he was the, he was the, he was like a teacher's assistant or graduate assistant. So he wasn't like in the class, but he was kind of helping right. the PE coach. It was part of his, you know, probably a junior, senior year class. And they played right. a they played a game of two-hand touch football during the class. He, to, he told me that Marshall Falk took the ball in the game. There were 20 people on the, on the defensive side. Nobody touched him. Nobody could oh touch him. Like, these are normal civilians, but tw- you're talking about right. one against 20. Nobody could tag him. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, that, that's just amazing. And then, and then, and then you then you look forward at the. Uh, I don't know if you remember the commercials when he first was in the NFL for the Colts, and they, they were like jet fighters after him and all that. Like that makes yeah. sense because he. You just yep. told me he did it to his friends. Yep. <laughs> right there, you go. Yeah, he, yeah my friend uh, Chip, who went to San Diego State, he told me he said that he had the, he was in the class. He said, and he goes, "There's 20 of us." He said, "The field's you know it's a normal football field." He said, we just spaced ourselves out. We couldn't touch him. He danced between everybody. You know, it's like a guy running around the shower doesn't get wet. Mark is in Portland. Mark, uh, who was the most enjoyable to watch? Well, you know, I'm the Mariota homer, so uh, I got to go with – I mean, and I make an argument that in the Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12 statistically, nobody can compare to Marcus Mariota. Everybody – you know, looks at him as a, a, a like a running quarterback, but his passing efficiency for you know people that have thrown a thousand or more passes in college, I think he's got the highest passer rating. He threw for forty-one touchdowns in that 
Heisman year with four picks, and he had over 100 touchdowns with 13, 14 picks in his three-year career. So he was one of the greatest passers in college history, and he also scored 15 touchdowns that season as Heisman year running the football. As you know, John, he's a great running quarterback as well. So I would make – and then he had record – performance in the Rose Bowl against Florida State, 59 points and 640 yards are still Rose Bowl 100-year-plus records. So um, I, I make a strong argument. He's the best West Coast uh, Pac-10, Pac-12 player in history. And he made it look so easy, too. Like There were some times where I thought he just looked so smooth running the offense, so in command. It was just so much fun to see him do it. It was, uh, it was you know, it was – it was like he was an artist. I mean, that, that I just got the vision of this one play when they were playing Michigan State in his last year, and they were struggling, the Big Ten team at home. And Mariota was, looks like he's going to take off running on a third and 12, and he made a, like a no-look basketball pass to his yes. receiver to get the I first down. I don't know if you remember that play. Yeah, was, I do. He was just improvising. He was just yep. a great athlete. Yep. Great I guy, think, too. Yeah, I think it was. I think that play, that particular play, I might even have the audio of that. I think that particular play it was like a it was like a fourth and five as they were going in and it looked like he wasn't going to get it and then he suddenly just kind of does like a uh, forward you know yeah best best example it wasn't a chest pass but it was kind of like a no look pass off to the side just made everything look so effortless uh let's go out to Jesse who was in Kaiser Jesse who's the player How's it going John <clears throat> Going well um, I I'm, grew up a big Montana State Bobcat fan, and uh, Travis Lule, um, he actually was the quarterback of the Bobcats in late yeah. or 2005-ish, and he led the team, obviously, in, in passing but rushing, and then he was also the punter. So it was just one of those things growing up, middle school, high school, that you're just yeah. in awe of this guy. Plus he, plus, he beat the Grizz a few times, which is always a win for us. So. Yeah, he. I, I believe he came to a free agent camp in Portland that the Canadian Football League was holding years ago. It was like 2010-ish, and he ended up in the Canadian Football League because he had tried out. And, and by the way, he was the MVP of uh, of the league in 2011. Uh, really good yeah. player. Really good player. Um, and uh, here's a guy who still – he's still the all-time leader in uh, Bobcats history with completions and pass attempts and 81 touchdowns. Pretty Pretty impressive. Uh, all right, let's go to uh, Jerry, who's in Happy Valley. Jerry, how's Happy Valley? Oh, it's great, John. Good to talk to you, buddy. Uh, listen, everybody talks about the offensive guys of uh, they were so imp- impressive. One comes to mind in the '80s when I was the in the high school area was uh, was Rocket Ishmael at Notre Dame. Every time he touched the ball, he was so electric and everything. And he scored so many long, big touchdowns and everything. But nobody gives any credit to the defensive guys. And one guy that I really feared was really good because my brother played with him at OU was Brian Bosworth. That guy scared the living nuts out of everybody. And he hit so hard and played, <laughs> was probably the best college linebacker I've ever seen. And he finished second in the Heisman. Everybody thinks we're all that hype, you know, and all the trouble he had. He even got drafted up here in Portland, I mean, to Seattle. And I grew up in Texas watching this kid. This kid and we were the same age. And he was from Irving MacArthur High School. And his recruiting uh, stories were just phenomenal. But he was off the chains and tents. And he was a game changer, just a game wrecker. Yeah, he was. Uh, I remember him at Oklahoma. He made everybody change their hairstyles around that time. Everybody was fierce. I also remember um, Bo Jackson 
you know, it's probably a bad angle, but that Monday night football game where Bo Jackson went wild, uh, it was it was kind of billed at Bo, as Bosworth against Bo. Scott's in Lake Oswego. Scott, what's on your mind, man? Oh, hey, John. I uh, The most exciting football player I've ever watched in college is an older guy. His name was Earl Campbell. He played oh, yeah. for the Texas Longhorns. Yes. And he could never make it through a game with his shirt still on. It'd get ripped <laughs> off of him, his jersey. It was fantastic. Yeah, they had the tearaway jerseys, but, man, he could pun- he punished people. He was, uh, he was uh, and again, yeah, you mentioned, like, I just thought of something when, you know, he's talking about people couldn't tackle him or he couldn't get through the game. Earl Campbell, um, the Tyler Rose, Tyler, Texas, um, when you talk about college, Earl Campbell rushed for 1,700 yards in 1977, and he did it in 11 games. This wasn't a guy like playing a bunch of playoff games, bowl game, 11 games, 1,744 yards. He averaged six and a half yards a carry, was the uh, the co- was the college player of the year that year and won the Heisman Trophy. Uh, but Earl Campbell, the tearaway jersey. You, you know, Jim Brown passed away last week, guys, and it. You know, Jim Brown had a similar thing where he had he would wear the tearaway jerseys. It was of the time. And, you know, they played that exhibition game here in Oregon uh, where Harry Glickman brought the Browns in. He was bringing in NFL teams left and right. Uh, Cowboys played a game here. Rams played a game here. Uh, first overtime sudden death game was an exhibition game played in Portland. Harry Glickman was the promoter. and But Jim Brown played a game, and he went through 10 jerseys in the game. And I know one of the guys who, who got one of the torn-up Jim Brown jerseys after the game. I reached out to him over the weekend because, I, cause I, you know, he when I was at his house one time, he pulled it out of his safe. He had a, you know, a jersey all nice and in plastic. And he's like, this is Jim Brown's jersey. He wore it in the exhibition game that was played in Portland. And so I, I texted him. I said, hey, do you still have that Jim Brown jersey? And he said, no, he sold it. He sold it. And here's how he got the jersey. Harry Glickman knew his father. And so his dad, I guess, was working or was around the game, the exhibition game, knew Harry well, was a fraternity brother with him at the University of Oregon. And uh, John uh, John was his name. And John got the Jim Brown jersey, one of the torn jerseys after the game, kind of as a souvenir. Guess what that jersey sold for, Stephen, uh, about two years ago? Oh, I, I can't even guess. A lot of money. $37,000. Hmm. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I'm sure at the time they thought, oh, it's really cool. It's worth, you know, this is a good thing to have, like a good memento. All these years later, uh, you know, grandkids selling it for $37,000. James is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. James, how you doing? What is going on, John? Not a whole lot. Hey, man, so it might not be like the most popular Oregon quarterback, but you didn't say the best Oregon quarterback. No, just, the, just the most, in, yeah, the most enjoyable player yeah, you've enjoyable. ever seen play. Yeah. So, like, Right around the time that they were at Oregon and had the blur offense and they started having the uh, little clock down in the bottom corner on how quickly they got the plays yeah. off. Yeah. I, Jeremiah Masoli. I mean, mm. he was a wizard with his hands as far as like you had. I've never seen the camera be more juked out by any other player in my life. Like they'd be watching whether it was uh, Jeremiah Johnson or uh, Michael James running up the sideline. He didn't have the ball. Mazzoli had it, and he was running yeah. around the outside. And there was two plays. There was uh, the bowl game against 
um, Oklahoma State where he chucked that dude and, like, rolled off of him and went into the end zone to take the lead. And then the Civil War game on the sideline, they had to get that first down. It was fourth and, like, whatever they were losing. And he trucked that dude on the sideline and got the first down. And he was not, like, the most accurate or dynamic player, but just something about his intangibles and how he could, like, just be a wizard on who had the ball and who didn't. Yeah. I just he, was he was really creative. He, he was really he was a really creative, creative player, super creative player. Yeah. I'm going to play a highlight from Masoli just because uh, you, you jarred a memory. And back to throw the ball. Masoli wants to throw pressure, comes, runs away from it. Now he will run. 20, going to get a first down, 30, down the sideline, and going to go out of bounds, up at about the 46-yard line. He just outran everybody. Just outran everybody. He would also, you know, improvise really well. Like just you'd think he's gonna run and then, you know, he'd switch hands. He would even you know, he'd he would pitch the ball off right handed, left handed, he would just get it there. He'd find a way. Hicks in a motion across the formation. Got it, gonna keep it, wants to throw it. Downfield, it's caught inside the five, out of bounds for Nixon inside the five yard line. And Bob Taylor Oregon is just picking USC apart in all ways right now. Yep, Jeremiah Masoli. Here's a big Jeremiah one. Jeremiah with the ball, gonna throw. A lot of time. Still looking. Now we'll run. And a lot of room. 20. He's got the 30. Sideline 40. Down and cuts it in at the 50. Still on his feet in the 40. Inside of the 31-yard line. 50-yard run there. Here he is. Keeps it. Masoli, he's got a chance to score again. 10-5. You betcha, baby. Little speed. Split a couple of guys and stroll into the end zone like it's a Sunday afternoon in the park. He was a very creative and fun player. That's not a bad answer. JD's in Vancouver. JD, most fun to see play. Hey, what's going on, John? How's your day going? Going well, man. I appreciate that. Good, dude. Hey, so I was uh, going to call in and hype up Marcus Mariota, but I figure everybody's uh, doing that already, and I heard one gentleman already do it, and he did a great yeah. job. So I'm going to go a little back door, and I'm going to shout out my boy Keenan Lowe. Um, I actually uh, grew up right down the road from him, or from him, uh, Played with him, always knew he was going to be special, and seeing him catch his uh, first touchdown as a duck, that will always be my uh, my highlight, man. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, you know, he was, uh, he was a cool player, great dude, um, and he's doing great things here still. So, uh, yep. um, yeah, Keenan Lowe, and uh, on the defensive end, you always got to shout out Jadavian Clowney coming off the edge out of uh, oh. um, South Carolina. The dude was a freak. Yeah, he was great. Uh, Herschel Walker came to mind when you said Judavian Clowney. I thought about Herschel Walker. Bo I mentioned Bo Jackson earlier. Reggie Bush, of course, fantastic players. Um, Braylon Addison, when he was at Oregon, was fun to watch on a kickoff return or a punt return, more more likely. Uh, Stephen, you're the top five. You mentioned earlier top five. Now, what is this list? Is is it the top five college football players of all time? No, it's the. Uh, it was the top seventy-five quarterbacks of the two thousands. So mm. this is the top okay. five Sorry. of the two thousands, according to ESPN. Of the two thousands, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, number five, Joe Burrow. Number four, Tim Tebow. Number three, Vince Young. Number two, Cam Newton. Number one, Baker Mayfield. Ooh, yeah, gross. Ooh. Who put this list together? ESPN. The, okay. And there was they, no, I'm there surprised was, they didn't put Jeremy Lin in there. There was no like criteria it, of what it was, if it was best season, best career, but they had Baker Mayfield number one in the 2000s, and that is uh, that's criminal. It's a clickbait. It's, it's, you know, the whole list is like, hey, who gets eyeballs? Who brings eyeballs to our shoulder programming? Like, go through the list again. Like, top uh, QBs of the 2000s. So, like, Joey Harrington was 15, Marcus Mariota number nine, Matt Leinart number 17, uh, Jameis Winston, 16. Kellen Moore, 14. Johnny Manziel, 13. 
Robert Griffin the third at number ten. So yeah, I mean, just Baker Mayfield seems out of Where's place. Where's Michael Vick on the list? Uh you know what? Let me check that out. But he was on my list of most exciting Drew players. Drew Brees. Drew Brees. Uh, Michael Come Vick on. didn't qualify because he uh, played in the '90s. He did not play in 2000s. Uh, mm. Lamar Jackson was in there, number eight. Um, but yeah, Michael Vick actually was Michael on my Vick list. Michael Vick didn't play in the in 2000. Apparently not. No. Are we sure about that? I I want to say he, that was his last year. Was 2000. Um, Let me go look. Was, I think yeah, it was, he played 2000. Yeah, he played yeah, just 2000. the one bowl game though. So is no, that... he he had 97 in the 2000 season. He had 179. He rushed for 1400 yards. Well, then season. this article has no credibility. No credibility. He rushed in the 2000 season. Michael Vick. He, Michael Vick was the. He has to be at the top of the list. He finished sixth in the Heisman Trophy voting that year. In the 2000 season. He was on my short list of most exciting players yeah. that I ever watched him. Uh, Matt Liner was another one, just USC, that offense. But uh, my, my dark horse that I had, Pat White, yeah. West Virginia. Remember him? He was yeah. uh, him and Steve Slayton. Those two combined. They, yeah. were, they were a force, man. They were fun to watch. You said uh, West Virginia. I thought about Major Appleby back in the day. Um, yeah, Michael Vick in 2000? Give me a break here. Like, you know, are they just saying because he used his – some of his endorsement earnings to buy his mom a home that they're throwing him off the list. I, I, I guess. I don't know. That, that's, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. He was, uh, Michael Vick was, uh, drafted in 2001. He was the first pick of the 2001 NFL draft. So Michael Vick played in 2000 ESPN. Get with it. More phone calls. 503-417-7575. All right. We sparked a, uh, discussion about, the most fun you ever had watching a player. Your favorite college player that you actually watched. Who was the player you enjoyed seeing play the most? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Uh, let's go out to the phone lines. You had a lot of great discussion. I was, by the way, it was Major Harris, not Major Appleby, uh, that played at West Virginia. I had a uh, listener on Twitter correct me there. Uh, Steve is in Vancouver. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks. Yeah, most exciting. I'm going to go uh, touchdown Tommy Armstrong. He ran that Nebraska option <laughs> offense like a fiddle. Yeah. And uh, that run he had down the sideline in the Orange Bowl was iconic. So he was my most exciting player I've ever seen play. What is touchdown Tommy Armstrong doing now? I, I, Tommy Frazier. Oh, sorry. Tommy Frazier. Yeah, yeah, Tommy Frazier. Sorry. Yeah. What is Tommy Frazier up to now? I thought he was coaching last I heard, but I'm not sure where. We got to get him on the show. Um, yeah, he is. Uh, he's coaching. You're right. So uh, is he? Co- he's coaching high school football. Yep. In in probably in Florida. He grew up in Florida. Really good stuff. I love that. I love to get Tommy Frazier on the show. I'd like to g- throw back. Joe is in Eugene, listening on the Powerhouse affiliate Fox Sports. Eugene. Joe, what do you got? John, uh, I'm gonna go back to a duck as my favorite guy to watch okay. and. Uh, I'm going to go Cliff Harris, man. A lot of punt return <laughs> touchdowns. Ugh. I mean, it was just electric to when he was back there. I mean, he had three in the same game against Portland State. That season was just uh, just electric. I mean, every time he was out there, pickoffs, I mean, pick sixes, punt returns, all of it. It was just a show. Yeah. Can you, could you imagine Cliff Harris in a name-image-likeness world? Oh, my goodness. He would be a rich rich person and then another one similar i'll leave you with this cole ierla he was real fun to watch yeah real fun to watch you picked two guys that were really fun that both kind of had troubles at the end i hope both those guys are doing all right i'd love to catch back up with uh colt and 
and with uh, Cliff Harris. Uh, I was worried about both those guys, you know, after their football. And I think, too, they, they were kind of, you know, we talk about players, and you can hear the caller. He really loved seeing those guys play. But, you know, a lot of times you do see college athletes who it doesn't work out for. They sh- struggle. And I do think that there were some people around both those players that, probably should have been stronger with looking out for the person and not the football player, if you know what I mean. Uh, let's go to Pat, who's on McLaughlin Boulevard. Pat, welcome. Hey, John. I've seen a lot of great players through the years, but one one guy that just was so much better than everybody else in the field and played for Oregon was Achilles Smith. The, the guy, yeah. he didn't even know how to run the offense, but he was so incredibly talented. Just just unbelievable to watch that one play that well-known play where, where he ran for like 60 yards right at the middle. It looked like he was shot out of a shotgun. Yeah. It was incredible. The guy, I mean, he was so good that he was on there two years and he was the third player taking the draft. I mean, he maybe I mean, I, wasn't ready for the NFL, but wow. And, no. and the guy that just called, uh, you know, Cliff Harris, Colt Lyra, those guys were fun to watch. I remember Colt Lyra was, I went to a, uh, saw Oregon play up, uh, Play Washington State up in Seattle, and Cole Lair was playing fullback. Yeah, that's how talented that guy was. Yeah, you know the issue we've had Achilles Smith on the show a few times. I, I still occasionally will hear from him. Um, the issue with Achilles was he, I think he got bad advice from his agent, and he held out. Remember at the beginning of training camp, it wouldn't happen in today's world with the uh, slotted salaries and. You know, he would have been in a training camp. He held out. He tried to get more. It cost him time. He was slow learning the playbook. He just had a wobbly start. Again, you know, if you teach a kid to ride a bike, you know, you get him off to that start, you get some momentum, and then it's about pedaling. But when you start late, you enter training camp late, you hold out, you know, it was messy. Achilles talked about that on the show here. And and, uh, we, we, oh, I just think it was one of those moments where, you kind of just realize that representation matters, like your agent matters. Joe is in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Joe, go ahead. Joe's gone. There we go. I love this topic. And uh, it's got me thinking about a bunch of players I need to catch up with and get back on the show. Could have very well just said, I, I should have been, you know, I'll go back and I'll listen to the podcast and I'll I'll just start writing down the names. Of, you know, we need to get Achilles Smith back on. Uh, I heard, I got a call from Kenny Wheaton the other day. Kenny Wheaton called me. First he texted me and he said, hey, you got a minute. And I was on air. And I said, I, I'm on air right now. I have to, I'll have to call you after the show. And then I texted him after the show and I did not hear from him. And then the following day I called him and Kenny Kenny Wheaton was reaching out to me. Because he wanted somebody else's phone number. He was like, I figured you would have it. And I just said, hey, if I can be your Rolodex, that's fine. But i just so tempted when I and I get a call from Kenny Wheaton to just be like, Kenny Wheaton's going to score. Not it's Kenny Wheaton's going to score the phone number. Um, look, I really appreciate everybody who calls into the show and, uh, and uh, adds to it. Because all of the calls on today's show made me think about things. Like I, I had not thought about Jeremiah Masoli in some time. Should probably get him back on. Have him reflect on, you know, the departure. His departure from Oregon was messy. He was such a creative player. He was not a guy that you ever thought was going to play in the NFL, but he was a problem. You know, and he was a problem in the way that Vernon Adams was a problem. Very creative. Vernon Adams was a very creative offensive player. Uh, you know, outside the box as a quarterback. 
I love those kinds of players. And I think if you're an Oregon State fan, you have to think about uh, Steven Jackson. You have to think about Mike Hass, the receiver. Um, I, you know, I mentioned previously you got quarterbacks like Sean Mannion and, um, you know, even Lyle Moivau was a lot of fun. Nobody's having more fun than Lyle Moivau. Jaquiz Rogers. Jaquiz Rogers, man, some really great players. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show.